Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas, and I continue to be joined with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul. You guys are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. How you guys doing this morning? It's a little chilly. Was it a little chilly? It's just a little chilly. Hopefully Reese wasn't riding her scooter in this chilly weather coming here. Oh, no, I've decided to live in the lap of lift luxury. <laughs> I was at it. Lift luxury. Okay. I love the alliteration. It's like the lap of luxury. I get mm-hmm. my drive-in to I work in the morning. I get chauffeured like Queen Elizabeth Good. for the nice price of $8.99. But yes, it's a little chilly this morning, but I love it. But you guys awake. Yes. Everybody's good. Ready. Right and early. some ass. Let's right go. Right in the morning. All right. Let's go Do to headlines. Let's get to some domestic news. New whistleblower allegations suggest that the FBI has in its possession significant, impactful, and voluminous evidence with respect to potential criminal conduct by Hunter Biden and James Biden, according to Senator Chuck Grassley, Republican of Iowa. Furthermore, President Joe Biden, quoting, was aware of Hunter Biden's business arrangements and may have been involved in some of them wrote the Republican senator in a letter on Monday addressed to Attorney General Merrick Garland, FBI Director Chris Wray, and U.S. Attorney for Delaware, David Weiss. Grassley said that the documents, the FBI documents, had been shedding light on the activities of Mykola Zlochevsky, the owner of Ukrainian natural gas firm Burisma Holdings that Hunter Biden sat on the board of. According to Grassley, it is unclear whether the FBI followed normal investigative procedure to determine the truth and accuracy of the information or shut down investigative activity based on improper disinformation claims in advance of the 2020 election. I'll go a little further and say it's probably not unclear. It's probably pretty clear if this is what the FBI did. At least they colluded with Facebook just a little bit. The jurors in the case of Russian national Igor Danchenko, who has been charged with lying to the FBI during the Trump-Russia collusion probe, retired to deliberate on the verdict, a Sputnik correspondent reported from the court. At about 1 p.m., the prosecution and defense in the Danchenko case finished presenting their closing statements and the 12 jurors retired to their room to consider the evidence and reach a verdict. In their closing argument, the prosecution pointed to the fact that Danchenko worked for an extended period of time with British spy Christopher Steele on his dossier against the then U.S. presidential candidate, Donald Trump. What about Donald Trump? Well, former Donald Trump spoke with artist Kanye West, also known as Ye, and made plans to have dinner with the rapper in the future amid criticism of both figures for remarks considered anti-Semitic. Political said in a report, Trump and Ye spoke over the phone, Yeezy, over the phone, Monday following the latter's decision to purchase social media platform Parler, the report said citing a person familiar with the call. The decision came after other platforms, including Twitter and Instagram, banned Yeezy for violating policies on anti-Semitic language. U.S. efforts to provide military assistance to Ukraine could be put in jeopardy 
if Republicans take control of Congress after the midterm elections. U.S. Senate Armed Service Chairman Jack Reed said during a think tank event, quoting, if the Republicans are able to take over, they have a much more sort of extreme group of people, then their demands might be unacceptable in any way, shape, or form. So we could be in a situation where our domestic turmoil and our domestic arguments are such that the collateral damage, as I said before, is our support to Ukraine. Linking the midterms, Republican taking over, and military assistance to Ukraine. I wonder, will Republicans try to stop the spigot of funds flowing to Ukraine? The United States is confident in Pakistan's ability to secure its nuclear weapons. This is according to U.S. State Department Deputy Spokesman Vidant Patel. This is what, said, what was said on Monday. The United States is confident of Pakistan's commitment and its ability to secure its nuclear assets. This is according to Patel during a press briefing. President Joe Biden said last week that Pakistan, quoting, may be one of the most dangerous countries in the world because it has nuclear weapons without any cohesion. Hmm. And in international news, Liz Truss's new chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, who on Monday ditched further tax cuts introduced by his predecessor, Kwasi Kwarteng, in his unpopular mini-budget, called on Tory critics to give the PM a chance and ruled out the notion that he had any ambition to succeed her. As Liz Truss embarked on a flurry of talks to salvage her tottering premier premiership, on Monday amid warnings that she was, quoting, in office, but not in power. There were speculations that a tacit pat between had been entered between a Penny Mordaunt alley and Risha, Sun Risha Sunak, the Times reported. Sunak was allegedly approached by an ally of the leader of the House of Commons last week to discuss whether he would consider becoming chancellor again in a Mordaunt government. Should trust be forced to resign. Iranian Foreign Ministry spokesman Nasir Kanani said Tehran will soon impose retaliatory measures over new EU sanctions. In response to today's steps by the Council of Foreign Ministers of the EU, retaliatory sanctions against irrelevant European individuals and legal entities will soon be announced and imposed. Kanani said as quoted in the Iranian ministry's telegram. He also said that the European sanctions, a violation of international law, interference in the inter internal affairs of Iran, and a tool to achieve political goals. In more international news, as the United Nations positions for yet another military intervention into Haiti, Western media has ignored the massive demonstrations in the island nation against the acting Prime Minister Ariel Henry and the possible arrival of new foreign troops. Thousands have demonstrated in Haitian cities for months, calling for Henry's resignation after he arbitrarily rejected the transfer of power to a provisional government and decided to stay in power after his mandate expired in February. Those demonstrations have intensified in recent days after Henri appealed to the international community 
to help him restore order. Some foreign UK pilots are reportedly being offered up to $270,000 to teach the Chinese military the ways Western pilots and planes operate. The UK government was made aware of a few former pilot military pilots being recruited to assist Chinese forces as early as 2019, but had dealt with the issue on a case-by-case basis. However, now that the pandemic travel restrictions are being lessened, it appears the occurrences have increased, leading the UK to an issue, an intelligence alert warning pilots against working for the Chinese military. The Guardian reported that Australian that the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs had deleted text from its website that described West Jerusalem as the capital of Israel as well as language regarding a two-state solution. Australian Foreign Minister Penny Wong announced Tuesday that the Albanese government would officially reverse a past decision to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, a move that was made during the Morrison administration. Wong told reporters at a morning conference that former Aussie Prime Minister Scott Morrison made a cynical play that, quote, put Australia out of step with the international community. This is underscoring that Jerusalem is a final status issue that should be negotiated between Palestinian and Israeli officials. Google has permanently suspended the accounts of the Russian Federation Council, which is the Senate, which contained about 20,000 videos and over 200,000 Subscribers, the council said on Tuesday, quoting, the YouTube accounts of the Federation Council and the VMESTERF, Together Russia TV channel, were blocked and all information was deleted without any possibility for recovery, the council said on Telegram. Google's notification read that the accounts had been blocked in accordance with the rules regarding export restrictions and the application of sanctions. On this day in history, 1867, the Alaska Purchase, U.S. the United States takes formal possession of Alaska from Russia, having paid $7.2 million. In 1931, American gangster Al Capone was convicted of tax evasion. And in 1972, 1962, James Watson of the United States, Francis Crick of the UK, and Maurice Wilkins of the UK win the Nobel Prize for Medicine for their work in determining the structure of DNA. These are your headlines for October 18th, 2022. This is Wednesday, Tuesday, and you are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I'm unclear, Malik. Which one is it? <laughs> is it I mean, you're a little overwhelmed with the idea that it's like almost Christmas. I mean, may as well put your Halloween stuff up and your Thanksgiving stuff. Now. I know, right? Just skip the Christmas. We had it wrong. We got into the Halloween. Have they started putting the the um, Thanksgiving stuff in the um, stores yet? Because, you know, they typically bypass Halloween. You know, they do it before no, Halloween. No, strangely enough, Halloween has been like a 
just a huge holiday in all the stores, and I'm just like, I just want the pumpkin stuff. I don't, yeah. need, I don't need a carved pumpkin. Um, tell me what you guys take of the Kanye West stuff. Oh, buying parlor or which part? I mean, all so of it. Much with Kanye. So right here, former President Donald Trump spoke with artist Kanye West, also known as Yee. I didn't know he was Yay. known as that. Yay. 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 Oh, mm-hmm. right, Kanye. Okay, mm-hmm. fair enough. Yay. Um, it made plans to have dinner with the rapper in the future, made criticisms of both figures for remarks considered anti-Semitic, political said in the report. Kanye, or Trump and Ye, spoke over the phone on Monday following the latter's decision to purchase social media platform Parler, the report said, citing a person familiar with a call. The decision came after the other two platforms, Twitter and Instagram, banned Ye for violating policies on anti-Semitic language. So Ye and Trump mm-hmm. are now in the same boat, apparently. Mm-hmm. Now, he, Kanye West was always weird to me, especially with Trump. Do you remember when he went to the White House? Yes. And he acted like Trump was his dad or something like that? I'm just like here that? to take a picture. How weird is that? Why is he acting this way? Because like, this, is, this is Kanye. I mean, Kanye has, has kind of had this sort of, as you say, weirdness. I mean, even that him. slave thing. He was like, oh, black people didn't have to be slaves. I it was think a that choice. this is. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is Kanye. Um, I don't think it has anything to do with Trump. I don't think it has anything to do with conservatism. No, Trump looked surprised by the whole thing. Trump was looking at him like, Yeah, I remember him going there and even his behavior in the white, you know, maybe maybe it's just me because I'm thinking that, well, if you're in the Oval Office, you're supposed to act act a particular way. way. Well, he did not. No. Even there. I mean, I I thought he was going to jump on Trump's lap or something like that. I mean, it was super weird. Yeah, but that, um, you know, that is the Kanye that I've known for years now. But he wasn't always that way, was he? Absolutely not. Well, after his mother died, he... Went nut. Yeah. Well, I won't say he went... He he lost himself. Right. He actually wrote a song called I'm Lost in the World. I'm Out of My Life. And he did. Yeah. But I will say this, Jamal, for your benefit, they're both Geminis. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. So if that makes, if that look, helps anything. That, that doesn't help anything. That behavior was bizarre. Okay. <laughs> anyway, look, there are a lot of Gemini's that would sit there and would not act that way in the White House. No, I think this is Kanye, and I think he's kind of embraced being different. It's oddball. Here, yeah. Here's where I'll you know, go Michael with Jackson this. did that, right? Here's where well, I'll Michael, go with this. No, very good example a, of that. Yeah, because Michael Jackson was like. You don't I, have I, to be I, weird, Mike. Right. You choose he to be. He chose to be. Right. He, like, so stories like, well, he sleeps in an incubator or whatever chamber, the thing was called. A chamber. Uh, yeah. yeah, he put those stories but out in the media to give himself a You know, he was walking around with the mask on well before two years. Yes, he was. He let other people breathe his oxygen. But I will say this. Okay, so here's the thing. And I've been a, I've been a, a fan and now I am a person hoping that he's well. You mean West? Yes. Um, Kanye West came to Michigan State back in, I'm going to tell my age, 2006. Um, I loved his music. I love what he stood for. He talks about in one of his songs how his grandfather made him sit in the seat where people didn't want black people to eat. His father took him to, I mean, his grandfather took his mother to sit-ins, and because of that, he was born with an ideology of who he was as a black man in America. So with that historical point, I thought he was fantastic. Um, He spoke about things that were positive. He wasn't the, I'm a killer, I'm a thug, I'm a shooter. He said, that's not my identity. Even though I grew up in Chicago, I have nothing to do with that. I'm a positive person. I want to talk about positive things. So from that aspect, loved him. Um, I do believe that one, 
His mother passing had a huge, tremendous effect on his mental health. And I understand that as a person whose matriarch also passed, I realized that that has, it's literally taking the air out of your lungs and who you are as a person can dramatically shift. You can break. It can literally cause a psychotic break. That leads us to the third point. I believe he does have mental health concerns and needs. I don't believe they are being properly met. I believe his proper, his current relationships and the people around him also uh, contribute weaken, to it. They contribute to and weaken to the stability of his fin- uh, mental health. Um, you add to that an insane amount of wealth, people who are, yes, people around him who won't tell him the truth because it's too beneficial not to, um, because they get, they benefit and gain from it. But if there was anything that revealed it to me, it was a documentary um, called uh, he's a genius. Yeah, he's a genius, mm-hmm. and it was from someone from Chicago who had literally charted his entire career path yeah. and been his friend for the entire you know twenty years or so, and showed that this person has a mental had, had basically had a break. Yeah, and well, he's bipolar. He's actually because Kim, well, Kim Kardashian, Kim Kardashian actually was. talks about it. Yeah, that that he's on. When he is and when he isn't taking medication. I don't trust her to tell me anything. So I mean, from I, the well, medic, I can believe that. But, but I, can I can believe, believe that. I mean, seeing his behavior, like if he's yeah. in a manic phase when he's talking to Donald Trump and people are watching him, like, oh, my God, he's nuts. But where he is now is a person that's—it's dangerous because he's got some information that's healthful and positive, and then he's got some information that's— not positive. And see, that sounds bipolar. Yeah. Like that sounds he, he sounds he, bipolar. And he's balanced. He's attempting to calibrate the balance and it's not, not probably well. without being medicated. I mean, you know, very smart people aren't unlikely to be treated. Yeah. And that's probably the case. Especially if he's extremely wealthy. The people around wealthy. him don't necessarily care. Right. And they're like you said, they advantage themselves off the way he uh, like MC I Hammer, say for example. The Kardashian family would probably be in that boat. When MC Hammer was going on, and God, I'm really showing my age on this one. Like the number of people around him, he's thinking, I'm supporting all of these people, mm-hmm. I'm taking care of these people, mm-hmm. these right. are my friends and everything. He went broke. Yeah. He went broke. Yeah. And then he's like looking around and everybody's gone at the right. point where he's broke. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, yeah, I mean, that's the thing with cash, right? When you have all of these people, this entourage. You never necessarily know whether they're there because they care about you in earnest or they care about you for the cash. Yeah. So, but look, let's do this. Let's take a break. We're going to come back with the monologue. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Reese Everson, Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Reese Everson and Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And I want to have a conversation about Europe. A close friend of mine, a close female friend of mine, made the point of saying, hey, the protest taking place in Germany. And when I made the point to her that protests were also taking place in France, she was like, really? I'm not seeing that. That seems to be completely blocked out. And that would make all the sense in the world, considering the way that Europe and the United States and the press and media have basically taken one very specific line of, one, dropping context on the issue of Ukraine and the consequences of that. Um, But two, any opposition towards it. It was part and parcel to the reason that these liberal democracies that supposedly cared about information, free press, and all of this other stuff immediately turned on a dime and got rid of any notion of a free press by removing any particular let's say, subject or context against their own idea of what the world is, meaning the geopolitics of the world. And the protests aren't just there. France, thousands on the streets, 
Prague, thousands on the streets, Moldova, Belgium, and Germany. And when you get to Germany and France, you're talking about the powerhouses economically of Europe. It's beginning to dawn on the public that they are grotesquely incompetent, prodigiously weak, and criminally short-sighted leaders, elected leaders, no doubt, have sold them out for the interests of the U.S. at the expense of their own economic security. And for that matter, even what it means to be European. Mind you, this is a public that most likely accepts the propaganda they were given on Ukraine because all contacts have been dropped. And from a media standpoint, the media basically eliminated any real notion to give them a real, honest, contextual understanding of the event itself and to give them one main specific line in order to justify what they're doing and what they're encountering um, from the standpoint of economic devastation. But I made the point multiple times that it doesn't really matter if you give them something on Ukraine. It doesn't really matter if they accept the propaganda. They're not going to be willing to accept the damage that they are taking with the excuse of Ukraine. And those elected leaders are going to have to stand there and explain to them why their economic devastation, why their standard of living have dramatically dropped to such an extent that Ukraine is a justification for it. I have a hard time believing that that is going to pan out. So what did you get? You get Boris Johnson government collapsing, failing miserably. Liz Truss failing miserably. You get Macron losing his governing majority. Draghi in Italy jumping ship like rats abandoning ship, not because he had to, because he saw what was coming. You get a right-wing government taking place in power in Italy. And of course, you get protests all across Europe. It, from my standpoint, this is also complicated by the issue of self-image, meaning these world leaders, Europe has a certain idea of themselves, every bit as much as the U.S. has a certain idea of itself. And would Europeans who are used to a certain standard of living, used to a certain standard of prestige, used to being part of the masters of the universe, despite only being 11% of the population of the globe, will they accept rolling blackouts? Will they accept? This notion of gathering firewood in order to get energy, will they accept lower temperatures from the standpoint of their showers or for that point, their just living situation in general? Will they accept people freezing to death because they can't either afford the energy or, for that matter, get the energy in and of itself? Will they accept these things and will the self-conception of Europe allow these things to take place? It seems to me that any rational actor, any randomly rational person with a modicum of intelligence may ask themselves or tell themselves maybe Europe has secondary interests from a geopolitical and economic standpoint than its master, the United States. Meaning these vassal states never seem to come to a conclusion that, hey, maybe what we need, maybe what is in our best interest is not exactly in the same best interests of the United States. And you get Joseph Burrell who seems to start to realize this, making a statement saying that, um, that China and Russia were basically necessary for Europe to be what Europe is. You're able to get relatively cheap energy, stable energy, secure energy for a certain price that allowed your industries to function, that allowed your countries to heat themselves. And for that matter, your industries had gotten used to, meaning set their model of operation on that energy being a certain price. The idea of China, for example, getting all sorts of goods and everything else, again, at somewhat of a cheap or, at the very least, a low expensive price. Did it not occur to you that your geopolitical interests may differ from that of the United States? And because it apparently didn't occur to anybody, it seems to be occurring to people now with France complaining, oh my God, Chakra Blue, 
But they're charging us all of this money for energy. How dare they? Well, maybe you should have thought about that before taking these brain-dead decisions that you were taking. At the fall of the Soviet Union, everybody understood you wouldn't expand one inch, and yet, following the U.S. line, you expand it all the way to the border. Now, from the standpoint of a country that's the enemy, this does, on some level, make sense. I mean, from the U.S. point of view, when the Soviet Union fell, there was never supposed to be another edifice, device, or, for that matter, power center that was ever going to rival the United States. And so, from their standpoint, we are not just going to expand one inch. We are going to expand to the border. The, ob- the reason is obvious. If you are in a military conflict, if you can have your enemy surrounded from jump, from the get-go, then right off the bat, you have somewhat of a fatal accompli. So the objective was, let's get all of these countries, these militaristic organizations, let's surround Moscow, Russia, with these countries, with their weapons, with their munitions, with the money that they could basically use to buy arm and defense system. Let's surround the country to do so. So if anything pops off, whether it is fabricated, meaning false flag or something that's used as a provocation, you know, like Iraq or Gulf of Tonkin, or for the matter, the weapons of mass or, or nuclear um, chemical weapons in Syria, that you can basically justify to your populations, well, we have to knock over that government. Hell, if you could surround the government, maybe you don't even need to knock it over. Maybe you could create all sorts of political turmoil within the government itself based on your proxy nations. It is a fatal accompli. No sovereign country would allow such a thing to take place, especially with countries that have been known to create provocations that didn't exist in earnest. All right, so you have that. So that makes sense. But the catch is, what does Russia do to this? You take this further and knock over the government of Ukraine. You take this further and offer NATO ship, maybe membership, to the government of Ukraine. All of them understood that these things were red lines. And yet, not only did you knock over the government of Ukraine, you cheered it. Rules-based order of knocking over a democratic elected government using Nazis as a tip of a spear and put on a Russophobic government on the border of Russia. You've refused to fulfill the Minsk agreements, despite the fact that you had all the power in the world to push Ukraine to do so. You're taking these provocative actions in line with the U.S. When ethnic Russian Ukrainians were getting killed, by the way, knocking over the government of Ukraine had other consequences. The moment that the legitimate government went away, You have regions that did not want to be a part. Ethnic Russian Ukrainians who took issue with having Nazis being infused into the military and a government on some level being egged on by this sort of philosophy. You get the Ukrainian military killing ethnic Russian Ukrainians for eight years and Europe stands by and doesn't say anything. Did it occur to you? that these things would have adverse consequences to you and your territories, meaning none of you in this situation thought to yourselves, maybe this is going to have negative consequences on us if we keep pushing this. And going with the U.S. on this, you took action one after the next that was adversely affecting your own economic situation. Now, in this situation, what do you do? There's no magical door. Your people are angry. The amount that you're paying for energy has dramatically increased. The pound has basically fallen through the floor. The euro has basically fallen through the floor. Did it ever occur to you that the U.S. interest in this of trying to isolate Russia and China because it considers them geopolitical adversaries, that they are willing to eat through you in order to get to them? Did it ever occur to you that the actions that you are basically taking, that you believe that you were friends and allies of the U.S., meaning that all of you are working in this together, that they were alternate plans associated that in order to get rid of China and Russia, or at the very least to go after them, it also means breaking the linkages between you 
And then Burrell was right. All things been equal, the relationship between Russia and China with, from the standpoint of Europe was necessary in order for Europe to be what Europe is. And because of your decision to go with the U.S. on this stuff, you basically damaged or broke those linkages that made you what you are. So for the foreseeable future, the issue of energy, the issue of inflation, the amount that you guys are paying for food are going to be dramatically worse. There is no magical door for this. Even if you could get out of this winter without your people freezing, what are you going to do next year and the year after that? In fact, of the matter is your ally in this, in quotes, doesn't have the same problems or, for that matter, clearance or, for that matter, um, that doesn't have the same situation where they could be hit. Meaning we're not damaged to the degree that Europe is damaged. Worse come to worse, the U.S. can be an oil producer. This is not our situation. Looking at Europe, however, from the standpoint of the U.S., this notion of gas pipelines going to Russia, this notion of your trade relationship with Russia or for the matter China, in order for the U.S. to remain or at the very least hedge or mitigate this idea of a uniportal world taking a place, then those vestiges of Europe and for that matter, or for China and Russia, need to be broken. You guys were pushing Nord Stream 2 because all things being equal, you needed that extra energy supply. And based on this pretext and this brain-dead action that you guys were taking with NATO, you created a pretext where the U.S. can bomb Gazprom or those pipelines, meaning the things that you needed to be you was basically severed in this particular conflict. And you guys were lockstep with the U.S. entirely on all of these decisions. And now you're taking the consequences of those decisions. You have no way out. There is no magical door. Blame yourselves. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm here with Reese Everson and Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Reese Everson and Malik Abdul coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what we're putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio and video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make the show what it is. Definitely don't be shy. We'll try to take your calls at 9.45 a.m. But I want to get to our guests. Like I said, there's protests that's taking place all over Europe, especially in France. And I want to get to our guest, Tim Anderson. Dr. Tim Anderson is director of Sydney-based Center for Counter-Hegemonic Studies. He worked as a lecturer and senior lecturer at the Australian University for more than 30 years, teaching, researching, and publishing on human rights, development, customary land of Melanesia, small farming and food security, health systems and infectious disease, Cuban medical internationalism, self-determination and development, inter- independent regional integration, and resistance to wars of 21st century. His most recent books, Land and Livelihoods in Papua New Guinea, in 2015, Dirty War in Syria, now published in 10 Languages, Countering War Propaganda of the Dirty War on Syria, Axis of Resistance Towards the Independent Middle East, and Pandemic and Independent Countries. Dr. Tim Anderson, that is a hell of a bio. That is bio. impressive. That is Dr. very impressive. Dr. Anderson has the credentials. Yes, he does. How you doing, man? You doing all right this morning? 
Very good. It's evening here, but anyway, good morning. Well, or good evening, I should evening say. Good to you, sir. I know, right? On the other side of the globe. So I want to get into these protests. I was looking at your channel, and hmm. tens of thousands of Paris protests rapidly rising costs of living while the French government indulges in economic war against Russia, Iran, and Venezuela. Now, to me, this was somewhat insane. I mean, all things been equal. You had, and I'll give an example. You had the government of Italy collapsing, literally collapsing. And the only thing that they could talk about is Ukraine. Same thing with Boris Johnson, failing miserably. And whereas Italy or the Europe, or let's say the pound, is falling through the floor, their main concern, even with the Liz Trust government, is Ukraine. Same thing with France. You have energy costs rising all through Europe, food costs rising all through Europe as a direct result of the actions that they've been taking with NATO while dropping all contacts from the standpoint of the public. And yet, the public is protesting nonetheless. Explain to me what's going on in France with these protests. Well, as an outsider looking at France, um, we've got to remember the history there. There's some sort of tradition in France of being semi-independent within this NATO relationship. But um, I think the the events that you've been talking about show that it's not the case, really. Um, Macron, who came himself from a banking background, where they were hard-nosed about so-called market forces and prices and so on, has now been begging to the Norwegians and the US about uh, unfair prices they're imposing for their for their gas. And this was always a, a known thing that the uh, the LNG from the US was far more expensive than Russian gas. And that's why German industry wanted Russian gas. That's why large parts of Europe were benefiting from, from Russian gas. And recently, uh, Ch- former Chancellor Angela Merkel said she had no regrets about that decision, that, that Russia was a reliable supplier. And um, that was good for German business. Right. Yeah, you're talking about Nord Stream too. Right. I mean, Angela Merkel pushed to ha- get that through despite U.S. opposition from the beginning. The U.S. opposed it for years, for years and years and years. For a very long time, the, the, the U.S. was opposing this, any sort of normalization or normal commerce between Russia and Germany. They were the one the one that was, you know, the, the fly in the ointment there, basically. And, of course, with the Ukraine war, they got their opportunity to, uh, well, as everyone knows now, they, they bombed it. They sabotaged it. And that's the rub, right? I mean, all things being equal, Nord Stream 2 became a, like you said, fly in the ointment. It was something that the U.S. absolutely and entirely hated and had been against, even going so far as to put sanctions on various um, companies that were basically working on building the pipeline. And I think the fact that Angela Merkel was still pushing this through despite U.S. opposition gets across that they actually needed that pipeline, meaning the amount that they were paying, like you said, for oil and gas, those things were entirely necessary for the industries of Europe to function as they function. And the U.S. wanted to get rid of that relationship this as a pretext to bomb those pipelines. It has dire consequences for industry in Europe too. We know that already there's closures of a number of industries. Before we get to the the long winter, um, it's affecting the the productivity uh, of a lot of businesses, which in, in some respects you might say, well, they've been competing with the US and now there's this humiliation, really. It's a humiliation that the US is uh, successfully imposed this this type of regime on the Europeans that they cuddle their ties with Russia, that they uh, they're talking it up like it's a very good thing, a good opportunity to recalibrate their energy relationships and so on, and it's a it's a dramatic uh, thing with dramatic consequences for the Europeans and their the, the European leaders. I, I hope we should distinguish between the leaders, of course, and the people there. Mm-hmm. But the European leaders are swallowing this up so far. They're complaining about it. They know that they've got problems with it. They know Macron knows he's got serious problems in France there. Um, 
it's uh, it's affecting everyone. Um, but nevertheless, this loyalty to the what in, what in Germany they call the the Atlanticist class, you know, the Germans who are brought up by the Americans and think think like Americans and are, are very divorced from their from their popular base. And I think Macron feels a similar sort of problem. But he's tried to play this mediator role, you know, the idea that he could talk to Putin and so on. But really, he's found himself um, eating uh, American. Crow pie, you know, and that's the that's the bad, that's the nasty situation he finds himself in at the moment because there are tens of thousands of people out on the streets there saying, what, "What's happening?" Well, that's the catch that I want to get into. What is the specific thing that they're protesting? I mean, apparently, I know the energy prices and those type of things. And if I'm not understanding it correctly, there's also been yeah, that, 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 that's driving it. It's it's cost of living stuff and the cost of living stuff. You know, energy is closely related to food because of transport and fertilizer and all sorts of things. So, uh, those are the basic things. Um, you've also got the heating costs, and and I've seen some horrendous stories from Britain where they're talking about the energy bills going up tenfold. It's look it looks it looks like seriously like there are some companies taking advantage of this. They're going to milk it for all they've got. They, they know that the people are expecting higher prices and they've gone up they've gone through the roof. So there's a there's a profiteering bubble going on there too, I'm sure. But the people in France, it's mainly about cost of livings. And then of course some of them are making the connections to the war and and the economic war with with Russia. And uh, the point I tried to make in in the tweet you mentioned before was that. Here we have with France, like the US in many respects, it has these so-called sanctions on more than 20 countries. They're not really sanctioned international law. They should be called unilateral coercive measures. There's even a UN body which is reviewing the use of these coercive measures. They've just proliferated in the last two decades, basically. But over 20 countries, including many of the big energy exporters, Venezuela, Iran, Russia is just the last player there but if you and and you see us is in this situation most of their so-called partners in nato are in this situation where they have gone down this path of trying to wage this sort of economic war to bring about some political change and they happen to include all the big energy exporters in the world so surprise surprise um it's affecting energy prices are the is the european public going to be willing to accept this for ukraine meaning does the public understand the context of the events that are taking place in Ukraine? Or are these protests specific? Meaning, I'm, I'm putting this poorly, but I guess I'm trying to get into this kind of disconnect between the public versus the political leaders themselves. And I've been making this case that this is going to create some level of political destabilization in Europe at the exact same time that the BRIC nations or the Shanghai Cooperation or, for that matter, um, the, the Belt and Road are taken off. Meaning, there's a second economic order that is being created in the world itself while Europe basically is taking it in the teeth. Does the public get that? And does the world leaders at this point in Europe get that? And what does it mean politically for these guys? I mean, there's been that gap, you know, between the elite and the people in many of the European countries, as you say, for many, many years. But of course, their preparedness to do anything about it has been... Um, has been hasn't matched that basically. I remember I was in Germany um, six years ago. I think it was the something like the 75th anniversary of the the German invasion of Russia, right? Which didn't go very well. Uh, even though they killed a lot of Russians, they killed 26 million Russians, but they were still defeated by the Soviet Union by the Red Army. Basically, the the, the Red Army carried the weight of that destruction of of Nazism in Germany. 
And uh, at a t- there was a, but at the same time, there were NATO exercises, military exercises going on in Poland, some of the Baltic states near the borders of Russia. And uh, RT German um, did a, did a survey, I think, or they referred to a survey back there, which which said, do you want to have normal relations with Russia? And it was something like eighty or ninety percent of German people wanted to have normal normal relations with Russia. They didn't. They they had that spectre hanging over them of a terrible war that had happened before. And which had, which had, you know, of course, devastating for both countries. They're aware of that in many respects. But now you, you're looking at a situation where this is really the cost of energy, the cost of food. These are things that are really going to affect people. It's not about their political opinion about, you know, the Ukraine government or what happened in Donbass or their, their political views of Russia. It's really something that's affecting them in a very fundamental way. And there's going to be serious reactions. It's very hard to predict what, but it, it, the, the countries vary a bit depending on to what degree they're dependent on uh, energy sources. But even France, which has its own nuclear industry, is obviously feeling the pinch. And Tim, I was, uh, Mr. Uh, Dr. Anderson, rather, um, I was looking and seeing how that even like the nuclear um, workers at the nuclear plant workers are saying that they're going to strike and that it's basically going to cause not a harm to the actual, you know, citizens, but definitely that the companies would experience blackouts due to them going on strike because they want a pay raise. And it's just, I guess, strange to me that you could be, in this situation where you're struggling for gas and but you're not properly incentivizing the people that do work in the nuclear industry. Um, and I think they're only requesting something like a 3.6% increase or no, no, they received a 3.6% increase and they're asking for a 6% increase. And in a time like this, isn't wouldn't you say that that's reasonable? Well, it, it's, it's, it sounds very modest, doesn't it, really? And, and this is the what you're drawing attention to is that there are these snowball type effects of this sort of crisis, aren't there? It's one thing to say, well, people won't be able to afford the heating bills, but then you have other sectors of the other sections of the energy sector that are going to be affected because all of the workers there are affected by the same cost of living issues. And we haven't seen the full effect of these uh, price rises. I've, I've, like inflation in Europe at the moment is generally about 10%. So if they're asking for 6% uh, increase, it's not very, it's not very ambitious really. And that the, the full impact of these energy price rises hasn't kicked in yet. And it was 10% some weeks ago. They could be higher now. Um, The U.S. has basically used the issue with Ukraine as a pretext in order to disconnect Russia from Europe. I mean, like you said, this was something that they basically hated, the idea that Europe was dependent upon Russian energy and everything else, despite the fact that that's how Europe um, became Europe. It needed that energy at that particular price in order for its industries, or for that matter, the country to propagate. If they're doing this with, with Europe and Russia, well, China is also on the marquee. I mean, this is also one of those hegemonic, you know, it's like, okay, this thing is challenging our hegemonic control of the globe. Um, are you, is there any concern that the same thing is going to happen with China using Taiwan as a pretext? And as we get into that, Australia. I mean, Australia was China's largest trading partner, and yet it was able to go in line with this AUKUS thing. I mean, exactly. explain the relationship between, I guess, Australia in this situation against China. And give me your take on whether or not Taiwan is going to be used as a pretext in the same way that Russia was used or Ukraine was used in order well, to there, basically disambiguate. There are a lot of parallels. 
there are a lot of par parallels, and Australia will be in the same situation as the Europeans. You know, it will be a, it will be hurting us a lot more to be loyal to the big brother that's supposedly providing security. But let's go back a step to the big picture, because you've drawn attention to the fact that there's this obsession coming from Washington. Um, of course, they're using NATO, but it's really coming from Washington uh, about the relationship between Russia and Western Europe, but also about China and the role of China there. And really, if you look at the, the big picture, the great game of today, you know, the great game used to be the Russian Empire versus the British Empire. Then it was the, the Cold War, you know, the Soviet Union versus the US bloc and so on. The great game these days is the US, which is a American power, um, you know, there's 35 countries in the Americas and the US is the biggest of them, but it's not an Asian power, it's not a European power, but it, somehow it has its footholds in Europe and its footholds in Asia, uh, amongst other things, you know, hundreds of military bases. What's it doing there, really? It's trying to extend its influence there. It's very worried that Eurasia, the links between um, East Asia and Western Europe and everything in between, where not coincidentally, a lot of the wars have been taking place this century in Central Asia, in Western Asia, for example. You've got seven countries under economic siege in, in what's called the Middle East, but the Iranians call it West Asia. If there are these decent sort of integration of the, the Chinese Belt and Road, the Nord Stream gas pipelines, normal commerce between Russia and Western Europe, where's the role for the US in Europe? Where's the role for the US in China? It It really... It becomes less important if there are good relations, or even at a, at a at a national level, if there are good relationships between South Korea and North Korea. What's the U.S. doing in the Korean Peninsula at all with its nuclear weapons? Um, so this is a a pattern you can see, and the U.S. is aware of this. And of course, it was written in a, in that book, The Grand Chessboard, by Brzezinski, back in the 90s, that the the obsession of U.S. as a seeing itself as the the single superpower in the world after the collapse of the Soviet Union, it had to make sure there were no new significant poles of power or the rise of multipolarity in any parts of the world. And and since the, the beginning of this century, there's been these doctrines coming from the Pentagon called um, destroying disconnectedness, for example, that, you know, Gaddafi was not connected with AFRICOM in, in Africa, for example, or full spectrum dominance, which is to say that their role in the world was not just a military one, but economically, ideologically, in terms of technology and so on, they wanted to dominate the world. It's this obsession of Washington of trying to maintain or extend its its dominant uh, status at a time when, of course, it's been, the US has been in relative decline for some decades now. Uh, everyone knows that, uh, and the US admits it openly, that China is going to be the biggest economy in the world in the next decade. And those relationships that China builds with other parts of Asia, Eurasia is the, the centre of the world. There's what, two thirds of the world population live in Eurasia. If there are these de decent integration relationships developing, um, and the US has been doing everything it can to try and smash the good relationships between the West Asian countries, for example, between Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Iran. You know, the, the US has positioned itself on the borders of those countries so they can't come together and develop decent sort of integration relationships. But at a big picture level, it's mainly worried about the what it sees as rivals, China and, and Russia and those, the normalising of relations between um, Western Europe and, and Asia. Hey, Dr. Anderson, it's this Malik. Thanks for joining us. 
Um, to piggyback off of Reese's point, she actually mentioned the refinery strikes, and we know that they've been going on for about three weeks, maybe since the end of September. And it's kind of growing, adding to the growing picture of defiance and anger about inflation there. Um, what do you make of the role or the impact of um, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who's, I think it's the leader of the France Unbowed Party? I think that's the name of it. And I ask that specifically um, on the backs of someone like Macron, who was um, reelected in April. But one of the things that he was talking about, he's actually talking about, is even pushing the retirement age back from 62. And that's expected to take, that sort of reform is supposed to take um, effect, think, um, by the end of winter. But what do you think about um, Melanchon's role in this? And do you see this getting even worse, especially if those reforms, like pushing back the retirement age, actually happen? What do you, what do you think about that? Look, I think that I, I can't comment in detail on Melanchon, but I think you're going to see a lot of initiatives and they're not going to be simply from the left. They're going to be right populist, left populist, center populist initiatives coming out of this crisis. It's really going to be a serious crisis and a serious economic crisis which and a humanitarian crisis in many respects, which is going to throw up a lot of new political um, ideas, basically. And, and they could be extremist ideas um, and they could be xenophobic ideas. But it's going to create a foment, as indeed the Great Depression of the of the 1930s did in, in Europe before. We've seen it before. So I think that in many respects, um, you know, critics of the left in 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 Western Europe have have blamed the 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 failure of ideas of left ideas for the rise of right populist parties, for example, which are mainly identified with their xenophobia and anti anti immigrant policies and so on. But nevertheless, there's a populist vein there, which is going to be tapped into by a number of different political movements, I think. And I think we'll see it in France as in we'll see it in in Italy. We're seeing in Italy now we've, you've got effectively a right populist government coalition government there again. Uh, and I think that that sort of politics is going to be inflamed by this economic crisis. Just as a quick follow-up to that, and particularly about the protests themselves, um, one of the things that were that's being discussed, and it was definitely discussed um, during the protests, I think, over the weekend, is that because of the issues that Macron is actually having, that Parliament may, act, well, they actually may ram through the budget, through the Parliament's lower house, without giving lawmakers a vote. Do you think that that's possible, that they'll just ram it through without giving lawmakers a vote? I think it is possible. And I think that they've already been struggling with those sorts of issues for some time because of the role of the European Union. And this is something that is an overlay on all of the political issues there. You know, the, the European Union has uh, and its institutions have become closer and closer to NATO. And there's been reactions for a number of years in Europe about the way in which the EU tries to impose what they used to call, you know, market solutions and, you know, the idea of privatizing and contracting out um, public health services and things that people thought they had a say in in the past have been pushed down from the European Union onto the European states at the expense of their democracy. And there's been a pushback which against the European Union. So I think the whole role of the European Union and, and national politics is going to be up for grabs again. Basically, there's going to be a reaction against what was used to be called neoliberalism, but now with the extent of economic war um, and and the blockades on on so many countries, it, it's it's appearing less and less liberal, isn't it? In many respects. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, even the 
the elimination of certain um, sources of information like RT or Sputnik for that matter for Europe. And they did it on the whim. They didn't want an alternate point of view. Let me ask you this. Australia has basically um, went back on this idea of having Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. What is going on with that? Is there a breaking relationship between Australia and Israel? Uh, no, there isn't really. Um, even though there's an Israeli reaction to it and they're acting alarmed and, you know, they're, they're being dramatic about it, really. But in fact, it's a very minor correction and it's a minor correction in the direction of most of the West Europeans, really, who have maintained the international law position that Jerusalem had a particular independent status. And with this idea that there was going to be really seven-decade myth that there was going to be an Arab state, a two-state solution, so-called. Um, there was no reference to the to the six independent reports branding Israel as an apartheid regime in in the in the Australian government statement. The foreign minister was talking about the well, effectively a respect for international law. Which remember, when Trump breached that several years ago, it was a rather you know he was out on his own. He managed to get a few partners in there, but by and large. The rest of the world had this nice myth of a two-state solution. They could support Israel. They could arm Israel. They could um, do everything to support Israel and still talk the sort of weasel words about a two-state solution, even as Israel was eating up more and more land on the West Bank and brutalizing Palestinians. So um, at the level of the Australian government, it's really a minor correction back to the position that most of the world holds, which is this idea of Jerusalem have, having an independent status and being the potential capital for a Palestinian state. But there's no indication that the Israeli regime is going to do that at all. I might add, though, that under the surface, and this is sort of creating a bit of pressure on, on what is otherwise a very um, reactionary body politic in, in my country, there are some movements. Some of the trade unions, for example, have stiffened up their position on boycott, divestment and sanctions. And the uh, recently, one of the biggest cultural festivals in Australia, the Sydney Festival, decided to ban all foreign government funding for their festival because there was a huge furor last year when one of the acts was found to be uh, being sponsored by the Israeli government. And uh, first, some indigenous artists pulled out because of that. And then there was something like 30 artists and acts pulled out of the festival because of that. So it forced the, our biggest cultural festival to actually block um, the idea of, of Israel uh, sponsoring that cultural event. So there is, there is movement below the surface. But at the, um, at the political level, the Australian government, although there's a Labor government now, it's really uh, not really making very big changes at all. Let me ask you this, and to go further into that, you had a situation with Australia and the United States, of course, criticizing Russia for the referendums. And yet, Israel is claiming all sorts of territory that it basically stole. Golan Heights, for example, that they're basically claiming is their own territory. And Donald Trump was like, yeah, Israel, that's theirs. How did it become theirs? <laughs> Syrian territory. Like, how is this hypocrisy basically propagating itself where nobody sees, you know, <laughs> the hypocrisy in these two things? I mean, I mean, the thing thing about hypocrisy in the United States is that in some respects, people think that it's uh, uh, the unusual. And in fact, it's what an empire does, isn't it? What an empire does is always double standards. And some of them even openly say, get used to double standards because they've never believed in international law. They've never believed in these things. Wait, you're saying there's no rules-based international order? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> the rules-based international order is for other people. Right. 
and you know the, the minimal state, the weak state, and the market forces for other people. And for the hegemon of the empire, it's um, a strong state to keep everyone else in line, basically. Yeah, I mean, the example you gave is a very good one of, of the Jolan, the Syrian Jolan, a large part of land occupied for 50 years. You've got the question of, of the breakup of former Yugoslavia and the carving up of Serbia and the uh, the creation of Kosovo as another artificial state. There's so many examples of that that the U.S. has driven through through the years. Wow, that's a really good point. That, and one last point. We have about a minute and a half. Blinken has basically made this statement. He says, quote, Americans have to be the ones who are at the table, who are helping to shape the rules, the norms, the standards by which technology is used. If we are not, if the United States is there, then someone else will be, and these rules are going to be shaped in ways that don't reflect our values and don't reflect our interests. Basically, whatever happens around the world, we need to be a part of it in order to make sure our interest is observed. Yes, I mean, you have, I think we have to give credit to the North Americans that they, the biggest slave economy in human history, which was founded on ideas of liberty. You have to think about that for a moment and give them credit for the doublespeak. They are really experts in language, in, in, in using words that mean other sorts of things. You know, the Europeans had their empires, you know, the US never claimed it had empires or colonies, you know, so the doublespeak is, is extraordinary in some ways admirable, you know, because really at a level of media, they're doing very well. We have to admit they're, they're very effective. They disempower, they fool a lot, the, the most highly educated human population in human history. You know, there are people very well educated that buy this stuff because it's pumped out so constantly at them. And I think it also it touches a chord in a lot of Western liberals in particular, that the idea that they can engage in a new war and, and engage in an economic blockade against country, and they're actually saving the poor people of that country. There's something that appeals to a certain sort of a saviour mentality of Western populations that they're playing very effectively. Excellent point, Dr. Anderson. Yeah. Thank you for you're, that. You're so dead on on that one. Yes. Because um, the propaganda definitely plays in the States and in the West. The voice you guys were listening to is Dr. Tim Anderson, director of the Sydney-based Center for Counter-Hegemonic Studies. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Reese, Malik, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul. You guys are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. And I want to give Dr. Tim his um, bio. He is uh, director of Sydney-based Center for he Counter-Hegemonic Studies. He worked as a lecturer and senior lecturer at Australian University for more than 30 years, teaching, researching, and publishing on human rights, development, customary land, yeah, customary land in Melanesia, small farming and uh, food security, health systems, infectious disease, Cuban medical internationalism, self-determination and development, independent regional integration, resistance to wars of the 21st century. His most recent books are Land and Livelihoods in Papua New Guinea, The Dirty War on Syria, now published in 10 different languages, countering war propaganda on dirty wars in Syria, axis of resistance towards the independent Middle East, and the pandemic and independent countries that one came out in 2020 the guy has an amazing pedigree to back him up on this so absolutely hope he comes back tim anderson um but i want to get to headlines but there's one thing i want to point out there's a october 
Harvard Caps Harris poll, and it is astonishing. It is showing the difference between basically what the public wants versus what the political parties are pushing. Democrats, if this poll is right, are utterly and completely screwed. Out of touch as usual. Out of touch is an understatement. Before we go to headlines, I want to tell you that not only was Dr. Tim Anderson fantastic, especially when he spoke on the doublespeak and hypocrisy of America, but I want to say that your um, monologue this morning was absolutely wonderful. And the rumblers are saying it. I'm saying Aww, it. Oh, thank you. It was fantastic, dead on. Um, I would have given it the subtitle of when being a ride or die goes wrong <laughs> um, but that's just you know from, when being a ride from a more Detroit aspect but no seriously about the door they don't have a door they don't have There's a no chronicle magical door. every yeah. time I heard you say that I thought about the movie The Chronicles of Narnia where yeah. they go into this wardrobe and it's this wonderful other world yeah. and even though it was covered in snow nobody had on a coat and everyone was having <laughs> a great time with all the unicorns and the four legged creatures that talk so yes they don't have that they when, have no magical when door when that snow hits it's going to be real when that winter gets when it fully arrives they're going to feel it you see them protesting in Germany in Prague and um, what is it Moldova those and things are going to spread heaters. they've banned space heaters in some of these places I mean this is insane and in, in Germany the, the demand for space heaters has gone up I think they said something like 800% but in yeah. some places it's literally banned and that's not going to help if you have roving blackouts exactly. and space heaters not going to work when they cut the lights out so yeah I mean I don't see a magical door out of it Europe is not going to be Europe. And look, I'm saying this to somebody who likes Europe. And so it's not a situation where I, I dislike them. I'm just pointing out, I see no way out. And you guys have done this at the behest of the U.S., despite the fact that it hurt your own populations. Um, but let's get into the headlines. In the news, new whistleblower allegations suggested that the Federal Bureau of Investigation, FBI, has in its possession, quote, significant, impactful, and voluminous evidence with respect to potential criminal conduct by Hunter Biden and James Biden, unquote, according to Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa. Furthermore, President Joe Biden, quote, was aware of Hunter Biden's business arrangement and have made, may be involved in some of them, unquote, wrote the Republican senator in a Monday letter addressed to Attorney General Merrick Garland, FBI Director Christopher Wray, and U.S. Attorney for Delaware David Weiss. Grassley said that FBI had documents shedding light when the activities of Maloka Zolotchevsky, the owner of Ukrainian natural gas firm Burisma Holdings, that Hunter Biden sat on the board of. According to Grassley, it is, quote, unclear whether the FBI followed normal investiga investigative procedure to determine the truth and the accuracy of the information or shut down the investigative activity based on improper disinformation claims in the advance of the 2020 election, unquote. Of course, Biden knew. Come on. Are you telling me that on Christmas dinners, on regular calls, when he's paying for a prostitute and Joe Biden gets word of it and has to say something about it, that at no point did this relationship, meaning Joe Biden was the viceroy at the time where Ukraine was basically overthrown and everything else. And you're telling me that his son's sitting on the most corrupt company, that Biden knew nothing about it, that Biden didn't say anything about it? Of course, Biden knew. Even in the emails, it makes the point that Biden had some sort, even showed up for some kind of conversation with somebody from Burisma, or for that matter, at the very least knew that some of that money was coming from. The big guy um, in one of those um, uh, the documentation. I guess the catch becomes, did the FBI know? And if this was somebody else, would the FBI have behaved differently? That's the point. And the idea that Joe Biden didn't know that his son was on that board for reasons other than experience. He had no experience in oil and gas. And for that matter, he had no experience in Ukraine. And yet, there he is. 
Don't tell me that he wasn't getting paid that much money just to be a figurehead or just because his last name was Biden. That's exactly why he was getting paid all that cash. The idea that Joe Biden knew nothing about it was just another lie, just like him liberating movie theaters, or for that matter, getting locked up for trying to see Mandela. Man lies fabulously and right off the bat, easily. Let's keep going. The jurors in the case of Russian national Igor Danchenko, who has been charged with lying to the FBI during the Trump-Russia collusion probe, retired to deliberate on the verdict. A Sputnik correspondent reported from the court. At about 1 p.m., the prosecution and the defense in the Danchenko case finished presenting their closing arguments, and the 12 jurors retired to the room to consider the evidence and reach a verdict, the correspondent reported on Monday. In their closing argument, the prosecution pointed to the fact that Danchenko worked for an extended period of time with British spy Christopher Steele on his dossier against U.S. President um, Donald Trump. That case has gotten that much more interesting. Danchenko is making the argument, I never talked to anybody that was a letter. Now, in his case, he's making a point that talk is different than writing a letter. And because talk is different than writing a letter, you need to acquit me. You guys said I lied. I didn't lie to anybody because I never talked to the guy to lie to him. Meaning this may turn just on a technical notion of what does it mean to talk versus what does it mean to write. On top of that, the judge has thrown out one of the cases. And so this is going to be somewhat of an interesting thing for Durham. Durham was able to get one person convicted. Sussman was basically released immediately. And at this point, it's unclear whether he's going to get Danchenko. Danchenko could walk. We'll see. Let's keep going. Former U.S. President Donald Trump spoke with artist Kanye West, also known as Ye, who made plans to have dinner with a rapper in the future, made criticisms of both figures for remarks considered anti-Semitic, political said in a report. Trump and Ye spoke on the phone on Monday following the letters, latter's decision to purchase social media platform Parler. The report said, citing a person familiar with the call. The decision came after the platform, including Twitter and Instagram, banned Gay for violating policies on anti-Semitic language. Let's keep going. U.S. efforts to provide military assistance to Ukraine could be put in jeopardy if Republicans take control of Congress after the midterm elections in November, U.S. Senate Armed Services Chairman Jack Reed said during a think tank event. That would be a good thing. Quote, if the Republicans are able to take over, they have a much more sort of extreme group of people then their demands might be unacceptable in any way, shape, or form, Reed said on Monday. Quote, should we continue, should, so we could, in a situation where our domestic turmoil and our domestic arguments are such that the collateral damage, as I said before, is our support to Ukraine. Dude, what you don't get is that is a positive thing. If you believe that the American public is on board for taking a hit for the thing of Ukraine, you are out of your mind. In fact, what the matter is, if Republicans get in, and make that an issue and make that a case with $31 trillion in debt, how are we sending all of this money to Ukraine? I have a hard time believing why that's a difficult argument to make. And I have a hard time believing why that's extreme. I would argue that the position on Ukraine in and of itself right now is the extremist. You're actually bringing this country closer to the brink of war. And you're doing this, why? For this geopolitical this game almost, that you're considering almost the world as a chessboard. And you're not taking into account Ukraine at all. You're using them as cannon fodder. I would make the argument that the extreme in this situation is what Biden and the Democratic Party are doing right now on the issue of Ukraine. Let's keep going. The United States is confident in Pakistan's ability to secure its nuclear weapons. U.S. State Department Deputy Spokesperson Vindit Patel said on Monday, quote, the United States is confident of Pakistan's commitment and its ability to secure its nuclear assets, unquote, Patel said during a press briefing. President Joe Biden said last week that Pakistan, quote, may be the most dangerous, unquote, countries in the world because its nuclear weapons are without any cohesion. Once again, cleaning up 
for the things that the president has said. An international news list trusts new chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, who on Monday ditched further tax cuts introduced by his predecessor, Kwasi Kwanteng, in his unpopular mini-budget, called on Tory critics to give the PM a chance. Give her a chance. It's only been five weeks. Give her a chance. And ruled out the notion of any ambition to succeed her. As Liz Truss embarked on a flurry of talks to salvage her tottering premiership on Monday, amid warnings that she was in, quote, office but not in power, unquote, there was speculation that the tactic pact that was entered between Penny Mordaunt ally and Rishi Sunak, the Times reported. Sunak was allegedly approached by an ally of the leader of the House of Commons last week to discuss whether he would consider becoming chancellor again and Mordaunt government should trust be forced to resign. Trust set there as Jeremy Hunt basically gave the budget that rescinded, remanded, got rid of many of the aspects of that mini budget. And she sat there quietly as Jeremy Hunt basically gave his speech on that. Look, it's unclear whether Trust is going to stay in power. And at this point, many of the conservatives want her out. We'll see what happens if she can cling to power. Iranian Foreign Ministry spokesman Nasser Kanani said Tehran will soon impose retaliatory measures over new EU sanctions. Quote, in response to today's steps by the Council of Foreign Ministers of the European Union, retaliatory sanctions against the relevant European individuals and legal entities will soon be announced and imposed. Unquote. Kanani said as he quoted the Iranian ministry on, on Telegram. He also called, in, on, called the European sanctions a violation of international law, interference in internal affairs of Iran, and a tool to achieve political goals. Well, yeah, that's what all sanctions are. <laughs> to the police, some political objective. Keep going. As the United Nations positions for yet another military intervention in Haiti, Western media has ignored the massive demonstration in the island nation against both acting Prime Minister Ariel Henry and a possible arrival of foreign troops. Thousands have demonstrated in Haitian cities for months, calling on Henry's, Henry's resignation after he arbitrarily rejected the transfer of power to a provisional government and decided to stay in power after his mandate expired in February. The demonstrations have intensified in recent days after Henry appealed to the international community for help to restore order. Basically, a guy that is considered to be a plant and a bat by the U.S. is begging um, you, the U.N. for military troops to come in to basically help him stay in power without any kind of democratic backing for him to be in that power. Let's keep going. Some former U.K. pilots are reportedly being offered up to $270,000 to teach the Chinese military the ways Western pilots and planes operate. The UK government was made aware of a few former military pilots being recruited to assist Chinese forces as early as 2019, but had dealt with the issue, quote, on a case-by-case basis, unquote. However, now that the pandemic travel restrictions have been lessened, it appears that occurrences have increased, leading the UK to issue an intelligence alert warning pilots against working for the Chinese military. I love that. Cash pays, especially in a situation where the pound is taking a hit. And money at this point is that much more necessary just to heat your home. The Guardian reported that the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs had deleted text from any website described West Jerusalem as the capital of Israel as the language regarding a two-state solution. Australian Foreign Ministry Penny Wong announced Tuesday that the Albanese government would officially reverse a past decision to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, a move that was made during the Morrison administration. Wong told reporters at a morning conference that Aussie Prime Minister Scott Morrison made a, quote, cynical play, unquote, that put Australia out of step with the international community, underscoring that Jerusalem is a, quote, final status issue, unquote, that should be negotiated between Palestinian and Israeli officials. 
let's keep going. Google has permanently suspended the account of the Russian Federation Council, basically their Senate, which contained about 20,000 videos and over 200,000 subscribers, the council said on Tuesday. Quote, the YouTube accounts of the Federation Council and the RF, basically Together Russia, TV channel were blocked and all information was deleted without possibility for recovery, unquote, the council said on Telegram. Google's notification read that the accounts had been blocked, quote, in accordance with the rules regarding exporting restrictions and application of sanctions, unquote, as cited by the council. That is great. All of these Western governments and you have these websites that are basically tool of Western interests has decided we don't want an alternate point of view. Think about that. In Western, in, look, in any country that you consider to be a democracy, it is vitally important that those people have information to make a decision on what they want to do and whether or not they support a particular party or whether, for that matter, they report, support their particular government and what they're doing. If you eliminate information sources, then the choices that people make are, by definition, going to be inaccurate. They don't have the information to ne- make the necessary political decisions one way or the other. The point I'm making here, it is vital in a country that's supposed to be called a democracy for that public to have that information necessary. And what these applications are doing, whether it's social media or news media, have been grotesque in fulfilling or failing in their philosophical and ethical responsibility to report truth to the public, to allow that public to make a choice that is in their personal best interest or the best interest of their country. This is a deplorable decision that these social medias and these media organizations are basically allied themselves with. Look. It's one thing for the U.S. to have a certain political position. It's one thing for the U.S. to put out that particular political position. They're going to do what's in their best interest. It is not the responsibility of media to toe the line. It is the responsibility of media to give the public decent, straightforward, honest information to allow the public to make their choices. This day in history, in 1867, Alaska purchased U.S. takes formal possession of Alaska from Russia, having paid $7.2 million. In 1931, American gangster Al Capone is convicted of tax evasion. Tax evasion, that's what they caught him on, is taxes. In 1962, James Watson, Francis Crick, Maurice Wilkins win the Nobel Prize for Medicine for their work for determining the structure of DNA. Deoxy, what is it? Nucleic acid. You guys are listening. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. All right. Let's do this. Let's take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to have a conversation, multiple conversations, actually, on Brazil, on Haiti. And we're going to talk to Wyatt, who apparently shouldn't be, but still is probably somewhere near Donetsk. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. And we'll be Everson Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Reese, Malik, and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement makes this show what it is. Don't be shy. We'll reach out at 945 for calls. But I want to bring in our guests. The election is taking place in Brazil. Of course, um, Lula won the main thing, but he didn't necessarily win by enough in order to prevent a runoff. So a runoff is going to take place later in the month. 
There's been polling that has shown that the lead with Lula may be lessening shortly. I mean, lessening slightly. And so we want to have a conversation about what's taking place in Brazil in regards to this election. We're joined with Camila Escalante. She's a journalist and correspondent reporting from Latin America. Camila, welcome back to the show. How are you doing this morning? I'm well. How are you guys? So far, so good. Better that you are joining us. So I want Lula to win this. I've made no bones about that. I'm pretty straightforward about my take on that. Um, I thought it was horrendous, appalling, to put it mildly, that he was basically thrown in prison and trumped up charges. But he is out. Those charges are dropped. And he's now eligible to run in the race. And accordingly, he seems to be winning this race. But it does seem that Bolsonaro may have more support than what we originally thought or what some of the polls originally thought. What is taking place in regards to this election? Has Bolsonaro gained on some level, even if it was modestly, on Lula? I think it's very, um, you know, within the margin of error, he hasn't gained very much. But we're talking about, you know, a 1% gain from these current polls that were released between, you know, within the last 24, 36 hours and the polls, you know, of last week. So we're still looking at a 7 to 8% lead on all the major polls between the two candidates, which is quite significant for a second round runoff because. Lula da Silva did, in fact, win the first round with a 6.1 million vote advantage. Those are 6.1 voters that he has over Bolsonaro, who he's not going to lose, who are firmly decided for him because he didn't go. They didn't go for a third party candidate. They went for Lula the first time. He's going to keep those 6.1 million advantage. And he's also got the endorsement officially of the third place candidate, Simone Tabat. She is a candidate who ran as a woman, as a feminist, largely a liberal following. But those people are actually all polling. Uh, the supporters of Tebet will now uh, cast their votes in favor of Lula, it seems almost certain. The fourth place candidate, Ciro Gomez, are the ones that are going to be a little split where they're, you know, he cast himself as a left-wing candidate alternative to Lula. But in fact, the polls show that he actually was appealing to a lot of the right wing, and thus he's going to have that uh, his party has now formally endorsed Lula for the second round, that's going to go 50-50. So although, you know, Bolsonaro did surprise us during the first round, he has a lot further to go if he wants to win in this second round. And so they're battling it out right now within, you know, the, the sectors and the populations that they think are key. So some of those, of course, are the large, of course, we've talked about before, evangelical and uh, Christian groups uh, specifically Catholic groups Lula is going after right now because uh, he sees that he has a large way, a long way to go, and that Bolsonaro has actually lost some support from those from those groups, and he's actually been abandoned by some of them because of some of the offensive things he's done and said. Well, I mean, it's fair point to say that he basically won by X million votes, but even in the first election, it seemed. Um, Thanks, Lee. Even in the first election, didn't it come across as if he gained, he had more support than what the polling or what people initially thought? Meaning they thought Lula was going to win by a higher majority or higher margin. I mean, is this something similar where there's an expectation that Lula is going to win, but for whatever reason, Bolsonaro is closer than what people think he is? Meaning, do you think they're getting it wrong in the same way they got it wrong in the main election? The campaigns are certainly both concerned and looking at that abstention vote. Uh, the abstention that took place, that the you know the amount of people that didn't actually participate in the first round, and seeing how they can get those votes. However, there are less factors 
um, you know, is, is what they're thinking. They're thinking there are less ways that the vote could go. In this case, when people analyzed the vote, they saw that Lula actually received exactly what the polls were predicting, what they were forecasting. And in the case of Bolsonaro, the reason it was a huge surprise was because so many of people who were intending or saying that they were going to vote for Ciro Gomez, who was polling third at the time, actually totally ditched Ciro Gomez at the at the last minute, and they cast their votes in favor of Bolsonaro. And in terms of all of the other races that took place, I think largely internationally, it was cast as sort of a win for Bolsonaro's party beyond the presidential and vice presidential race, but it was largely a false reading. In fact, um, a lot of the right-wing candidates that traditionally ran for some other right-wing shell uh, parties ran this time for Bolsonaro, but he didn't. But the composition overall of the legislature didn't really change. And in fact, there was a net gain for the Workers' Party of Lula in those other races, those other legislative legislative races. Are you expecting if Lula takes it? I mean, it's is this race going on and simultaneously with races for the Senate or Congress also in Brazil? And if he takes it, is there an expectation that there's going to be someone to windfall for the Workers' Party? Well, those races have already been decided uh, they, in, in the first round. And so we already know what the composition of the Senate and the uh, legislatures, both state legislatures as well as the National Congress, is going to be. Um, so that's already ironed out. What's really important right now and what Lula and the Workers' Party are dedicating themselves to is, in fact, uh, this, these races that have gone to a second round in terms of gubernatorial races. They have some very key and important uh uh, leaders of the PT who are running on the state level, namely Sao Paulo, which is the largest and most important um, electoral uh, you know, area in the country because of its large population. And it's going to be very important that Lula govern on a federal level with governors in those key states. Another one is the state of Pernambuco, which is actually his home state where he was born. And so he's actually been campaigning in those places as well, along with those gubernatorial uh, candidates and visiting the peripheries, these sort of areas outside of the large urban centers where a lot of marginalized, poor Afro-descendant people live and where Bolsonaro has been failing to get to. And so Lula's been showing up and doing these uh, sort of parades, they call them camionatas, through the areas. And instead of doing rallies where it's very difficult for anyone to see the candidate and see the stage if they're very far away, he's doing these parades where he actually goes through the favelas, goes through the neighborhoods, and more people are able to see him. Thing. Very interesting. So, I mean, it's kind of like here, right? It's one thing for Lula to win the presidency. It's another thing for him to have the Congress. Is he going to get the Congress? Meaning when the votes have been tallied and everything else, is he going to get the Congress? And what is that going to allow him to do? Meaning when Lula takes power, if Lula takes power, what is his main key objectives that he wants to get accomplished where he's going to need that Congress in order to co-sign him on? Yeah, he's been able to secure, um, you know, uh, the, the the same voting block that votes together for these progressive, uh, for this progressive legislation, which is the Workers Party. Uh, you know, won the the number of seats that was largely expected, as well as the PSOL, which is another left wing party uh, that wins a lot of seats in Rio de Janeiro, as well as the Partido Verde, the Green Party, and the PSDB, one of the communist parties of Brazil. And so they'll continue to be a very strong force within the legislature. And, you know, apart from that, we're talking about a very large coalition that went into the first round supporting Lula's ticket from 10 different parties. He's since then in the second round picked up 
the endorsements of other political parties. Um, and so I'm not sure what it stands at right now, but we're looking at a very large, you know, a very large group of people that he's are going to be governing. A, basically, he's going to have a majority. Well, not necessarily in the in the legislature, but in at, at a federal level and the people that are going to be represented within his ministries when he's going to be forming the government and handing out those positions. He's going to have to make some deals with these different these different sectors, including the business and private sector. And so that might ensure some level of stability, at least in the beginning, as everyone tries to get this economy back on track, because even for these different companies and, you know, private business interests to be able to exist um, and profit within this country, they need guaranteed uh, political and social and economic stability in the country, which was completely lost in these last years of Bolsonaro. Camila, I, I, thanks thanks for joining us. It's, it's Malik here. I, I, I have a question. I was struck by, during the debate, one of the things that Lula criticized Bolsonaro over was his handling of um, the COVID pandemic, particularly attacked in his resistance to I think vaccines and his embrace of hydrochloroquine. And I know that last year there was some talk about or questions whether or not he would be prosecuted for the depth. And I think the Brazilian Senate, um, there was an inquiry um, um, in the Brazilian Senate actually talking about whether he should face um, crime. I think they called it crimes against humanity um, over his mishandling. But what I'm wondering is how prominent is COVID in this particular election? And the reason that I ask that is because I know that here in the States, um, Donald Trump, his personal response to COVID was a factor in the 2020 election cycle. But two years in, um, well, two years later, is COVID really um, an issue? Like, isn't an election issue there? It is a massive factor. And it's one that I've actually... Uh, not spoken about as much as I probably should have because I'm, you know, in Bolivia where COVID was not as big of a factor here and it's not a, as big of a fixation from the left or the right. But it is the case that in Brazil on the ground, a lot of people when I've interviewed them or spoken to them have opened up by saying that it has been a disastrous policy and hugely mismanaged. He does, Bolsonaro does say, as including in the debate, as you said, that he was one of the first to make sure that he brought in uh, vaccines from the outside. He defends his record on that. And what Lula said was you didn't visit a single patient. You didn't visit a single hospital. And, you know, you're basically a sociopath and you allowed all these people to die. Some people would have been in favor of uh, Bolsonaro's anti-lockdown position. But in the case of Bolivia, for example, that was very uh, positive. When the mosque came back to power, they had an anti-lockdown uh, policy. They kept the economy open. And for that reason, the economy has been able to recover. In the case of Bolsonaro, they didn't have a lockdown, but the opposite happened. You know, the benefit of having a uh, of having an open economy and keeping everything running is you would think that, you know, it would keep give the country an advantage over other countries. And, you know, people would be allowed to continue with school and, you know, working and, and having that income. But that didn't actually happen in in Brazil. A massive number of people actually died and the economy was severely harmed just the same. Last question, and we'll have about 30 seconds or a minute left. What would be the major change between Bolsonaro and um, Lula if he takes power? Meaning, what is the major change that's expected between the two people that creates the difference between the two? Essentially planned economy with expert economists looking to the future, uh, re-nationalizing, get, getting a hold of all of the strategic industries of the country, 
uh, of Petrobras, uh, making sure that um, that this country is able to provide food and basic necessities for its actual inhabitants before going forth and exporting to make sure that they can get those outside that outside currency. It's a huge it's a huge difference. Something that was largely they didn't have time to speak about on this debate, but the economic policies couldn't be more different. Mm. Camilla, thank you for this. Always appreciate it. It's an update on basically what's going on in Brazil. Look, it's a major election, right? And Europe, or let's say South America, seems to be going further and further to the left. And if Europe, um, Lula is able to get in, Brazil is a major, major country, um, especially when we're talking about BRICS and everything else. So, Camilla Escalante, she's a journalist and correspondent reporting from Latin America. You can find her on Twitter, at Camilla Press. And I have watched her for years. Um, she's been amazing all throughout. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas and Reese Everson, Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And we're waiting for our guests to come on to have a conversation about Haiti and the issues associated with it. And an interesting catch, of course, Haiti have been racked by protests. And they have the government of Haiti, backed by the U.S., not elected government, has requested international help. Basically, they wanted the U.N. to get troops on the ground in Haiti to deal with the protests and the riots that have been taking place over the last several weeks. Armed troops at that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> not, Tariq not always says, yeah, you always hear Tariq used to say, keep, you know, keep hands off Haiti, hands off Haiti. Well, the idea that the government is basically calling for this, and there's something problematic about this. I mean, this wasn't a government that was elected. Um, Moise was assassinated. And the guy who they have in office now, I can't think of his name off the top of my head, but he's been on some level implicated in the previous assassination of the previous president. And so you have all of these people who be like, this guy's not democratically elected. His time at this point has been served right here. As the United or the US, UN positions for yet another military intervention in Haiti, Western media has ignored the massive demonstrations in the island nation against acting Prime Minister Ariel Henry and the possible arrival of new foreign troops. Thousands have demonstrated in Haiti cities for months calling for Henry's resignation after he arbitrarily rejected the transfer of power to provisional government and decided to stay in power after his mandate expired. Basically, I'm in power, and, and people who are in power don't want to give it up. That's right. That's right. Now, and, and, and now I, he's calling for troops. Now where he calls, he's, they're calling for troops, and they're, they're asking, are the protesters disingenuous? Well, let me ask you this. Wait, me, they're saying, are me, the protesters disingenuous? What yes. do you mean, that they want a different government? Well, the protesters are being depicted in the Western news as gangsters, saboteurs, and criminals. That, well, if the, you look at the articles in France, they're saying that they're, pro, you know, great gangsters and criminals. Let's give a little context to this, right? Okay, Jovenel Moisey was ambushed at 1 o'clock in the morning, 12 times, July 7, 2021. Okay, two of the suspects were in for, uh, that were a part of the 18 people that were uh, um, collected and, and said to be part of this ambush because he literally yep. 18 people went into his house at 1 o'clock in the morning. Are <laughs> two, two of them are sus suspected informants for the USDA and the FBI. There's been no 
um, conclusive information on whether they are or not because the U.S. judge sealed the evidence and so there's no of the trial yeah. so there's no conclusive information on that. Because they but still don't know who assessed it, who was responsible. But, but yeah. Let's go here. The next issue I have is that if we keep in mind he was killed, assassinated July 7, 2021, the first batch of vaccines arrived to Haiti July 13, 2021, less than seven days later, the first batch of vaccines. It was, only, it was the only country in the Americas without a single dose of vaccinations. On July 14th, they arrived. So here's my question. Who benefited from this man being out of the way if this man was the only country in the Americas that didn't have the vaccine and then he was assassinated and then 500, suddenly 500 uh, cases are now donated by the U.S. government. And then we also have implications of two of the assassination, the people involved in the assassination being connected to the U.S. government. I'm not shocked that it, they're connected to the U.S. just because the U.S. is also some mingling in Haiti going back for God knows how long. Now so we've got I, another I don't person know. who's uh, Prime Minister Ariel Henry who's been put in power by the U.S. government right. and it's calling for uh, the stepping in of the U.S. government. Basically saying we want military help to keep me in power even though I wasn't democratically elected. I, I want don't see to the know connection. was there a destabilization and then a replacement person put in office so that the that basically the US government has basically a, a puppet I know. Sitting well, in well, position. I mean, you power. can make that argument that there's been a puppet sitting in power in Haiti for God knows how long, which is why the public was against it. I don't see the connection with the vaccines though. Yeah, so are you saying that that uh, are you drawing a link between the vaccine or not accepting the vaccine and his death? Do I'm you think saying that, that this a... man was not a puppet because he rejected... Yeah, but Moisey. Moisey was not Moisey? a puppet. Moisey was a puppet. that he rejected the vaccinations for his people and that that was something that was not accepted. And because of that, he had to be replaced. I know, but not accepted for what reason? I mean, why would the U.S. care one way or the other about the, whether or not the population of Haiti is vaccinated? I believe that the U.S. wanted everybody. I mean, there was a whole propaganda push with Dr. Fauci so that everybody Um, was. What was the benefit, like, it's like you, as far as U.S. interests, right? What would be the U.S. interests in Haiti getting vaccinated? That's what I don't get. Because any person who stood up and said, we don't want this, we're not going to accept this, we don't need this, was effectively silent. I know, but why would the U.S. care? I mean, all things have been equal. What takes place in Haiti is not necessarily break through the U.S. media unless it's something major. Because the U.S. hadn't always just loved Haiti. Right, <laughs> loved exactly. Yeah, so it wasn't a situation where we loved the people in Haiti. It was like, okay, we love these people so much, we care about these people so much that we need to get them vaccinated, so we need to whack Moisey in order to do it. I don't see why the U.S. would care one way or another. Meaning it's one thing for your local population. It's another thing for another country. Right. I don't see why they would care one way or the other what happened to the people in Haiti. People around the world that were questioning the vaccine, whether it was in Africa and the uh, prime minister who is, I believe, Zimbabwe, who had a melon and an animal tested and they said it was positive for COVID. People who were questioning whether or not this was necessary were silenced but I'm saying, routinely. But why kill them? I guess right. that's the question. Like, why kill them? I why? mean, it could there could have been more to the story as to what they didn't appreciate or approve of him doing. But for him to take that stance in itself 
spoke to me volumes that he was at least standing up and saying no in some regards so that he was e- a puppet off string. I mean, Bolsonaro. I was going to say, yeah, Bolsonaro was against it. We were just talking about the same thing. I mean, Bolsonaro basically, the United States put in their documentation, um, I don't remember, they put in literal documentation that they were able to help, what did they call it? Adverse governments or something to that effect. But they used Brazil as an example of the countries that they pushed to not take the Chinese vaccine or for that matter, the Russian vaccine. Meaning Bolsonaro all the way through was against the vaccination stuff. And as he was against the vaccination stuff, he got all of those people in Brazil killed. Now, 600,000. Yeah. I mean, at one point, the U.S. got a million people killed from the standpoint of COVID policy. I don't buy the premise that it's propaganda in that sense. When a million people drop dead, that's no longer propaganda. That's real world. Uh, but we have a guest. We're joined with Doris Polo. She's a Trinidad-based journalist specializing in the Caribbean region. She was previously the Telesur English host from the South. Doris, welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? Hi, good morning. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. No, thank you so much for joining us. So I want to get into the protest that's taking place in Haiti right now. The government itself is basically, again, wasn't elected. Acting Prime Minister Ariel Henry is basically now calling for foreign troops. And the protests in Haiti are basically saying we don't want foreign troops and we want this guy to leave because he's not democratically elected. What on earth is taking place in Haiti right now? Why are there protests and why is the government basically calling for support against public will? So as we've discussed before, Haiti is in a crisis. The country does not have, well, citizens in the country don't have access to food and water. That's why we're witnessing a cholera outbreak, the first incident um, reported since what happened in Can you hear me? Oh, yes. Go for it. Great. So it's actually, it's really a devastating situation. Uh, People are protesting not only against the government, which, as you've correctly mentioned, is not democratically elected, but they're also protesting against calls for international intervention in the country's internal affairs. Right. So I guess my thing is, if they're calling for to be against, meaning we don't want military intervention, then what? I mean, I'm not... Trust me, this is not me saying military intervention should take place in Haiti. It's not that. I just, um, I don't see a way out. It's, it seems that the country is being racked by protests in a way that basically shuts down the government and its ability to function. And if so, how do you get out of that without having some kind of external intervention into the country itself? Because that's the argument that the government is making. I can't get any work done. We can't get anything done. The country is basically held up by gangs and other people who are basically protesting. What's the way out? So it's interesting, and and I would say a little bit ironic. Haiti is in need of fuel, food, and medicine, and other supplies. But the government has allegedly bought and received armored vehicles from the United States and Canada. Uh, We saw that shipment, um, um, military planes touching down in Haiti um, yesterday. And we don't actually know exactly what those supplies entail, except for the mention of those armored vehicles. And so we do know and we do understand and recognize that there needs to be some sort of um, intervention. And I I shouldn't use the word intervention, but some sort of involvement by by international powers um, to better assist Haiti to get into some form of normalcy. But you know, importing armored vehicles at a time like this, what we expect to see is more bloodshed, um, definitely more death amongst civilians who will become collateral damage because 
it, it's going to be very difficult for these armored vehicles to target solely the gang leaders, the G9, the 400 um, Moat. So it's going to be difficult for that to take place. And so we're definitely going to see Haitian citizens becoming collateral damage. And that's what we don't want to happen. Something that's happened time and time again. Let me ask you this. Even if they ship fuel, um, food, medicines to Haiti itself, would it be able to get to the various people who need them in a the population? And who would you even give them to? Meaning, I guess, I suppose you would give it to the government itself, but is the government in a position to distribute food, medication, and for the matter, drugs? I mean, food, well, drugs and food, medication, the same thing. But would the government be in a position? What I'm seeing in Haiti, I read an article in, in the 1970s, interestingly enough, that basically repeats what we're seeing right now. Um, the police service and the police force, a woman in the 1970s had reported that $700,000 was stolen from her. And what we saw happening was that at least three police officers were arrested in connection with that incident. Similarly, more crimes that are happening in 2022 are seeing the involvement of police officers as well as military personnel within the Haitian National Forces. And so it, it's difficult to say who should get access to the food supplies, to, to the to the fuel, because uh, the G9 gang, which is currently led by a former police officer, is in charge and blocking access to a principal uh, gas station, a fuel station, so people actually cannot get access to fuel. And what these gangs are calling for is for cabinet, um, for cabinet positions. They're calling for uh, the government to work with them, and it's something that I mentioned before. Definitely, we need to see the bridge of the gap between the Haitian National Forces, the government, as well as these leaders. It's very unfortunate. I don't think it's wise to give them power, but they already have it. Well, they have it just based on their military or based on the force they have on the ground itself. Can you go into these separatist groups that are there that are basically, I guess, challenging the government itself? We have, uh, you know, very, very big gangs running things in Haiti. The 400 Mawoso made international headlines after they would have captured some, some foreign persons that were in the country doing humanitarian With At least 16 of them are still in custody, and that's been months ago. Then we have the G9 group, which is a combination of as it, the, the name states, nine groups. It's led by Jimmy Barbecue Cherize, and, and that individual is a former police officer, as I mentioned. Um, and he is, is basically known for not only criminal acts against the police service, but also Haitian nationals. These gangs are abducting children, especially boys, um, into their group. They are inducting them into this criminal lifestyle. They are raping um, women and they are also murdering them, displacing at least 20,000 people across the country. And in the capital alone, we're seeing a lot of displacement. And that's also responsible for the gangs being in control of these districts is also responsible for the cholera outbreak because waste is not being removed. There's no access to portable water. And so it's a very dire situation. And, and, and we saw the United States um, announce that sanctions would be imposed 
on at least 11 individuals. Um, the, the UN Security Council has also instructed or, or announced that there would be some sort of blockade against um, Cherizé in particular. Um, they want to freeze his assets. They want to impose a travel ban. I don't know how effective that will be because he's in a country where, and he's in the capital, Port-au-Prince, where he is in control and in charge. It might make things a little difficult for him, but I'm, I'm, I don't think it's going to make that much of an impact. We need to get uh, barbecue chorizo off the streets in Haiti. But of course, it, 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 it's been said before that he has had links to uh, the former president who was assassinated in July 2021. So it, it just begs that there's a lot of political involvement with these gangs that cannot go unstated. Two questions. One, the current president that's currently there now, their belief that he has ties to the assassination to Hovenel Moisi, that's the first point. The second question is, how did Haiti get this way? Meaning, like, when you're looking at the situation now where the gangs have taken that much control and that much power, where the government is basically calling for international intervention into the country itself or militaristic intervention, how did Haiti devolve to this particular point? And is it true that the current president is basically expected or believed by the population to be involved in Moise's assassination? Haiti has been in this situation and it didn't happen overnight. Um, it's devastation after devastation when we're talking about um, significant earthquakes that other parts of the world never have to experience. Um, we're talking about political instability because of prior intervention strategies by the United States, by France, by Canada even. Um, and we're seeing a repeat of this now. Um, as you rightly mentioned, um, Prime Minister... Ariel Henry is accused of being involved somewhat in the assassination of former president, well, deceased president Jovenel Moise. Um, he was linked to a Felix Barrio, who he spoke with him hours before the assassination of, of the Haitian president. And we have to note that you know, um, the president was allegedly assassinated because he was intending to hand over documents to the United States, implicating people who voted him into office in criminal association and criminal activities, including uh, drug smuggling across uh, the, the country. So it's not something that happened overnight, definitely. Um, and we know that um, Prime Minister Henry would have fired the justice minister um, as well as um, the, the the prosecutor, the, the, the head prosecutor for the, the country. And so it, it just goes to show that there is a level of instability that is con that is being actu actually orchestrated by the current, and I, I'm using the word administration loosely because we can't call it an administration. Um, Katie has not had elections since 2016. We're now in the year 2022, and that is what they want. They want um, the the electoral body to be established. They want. Um, free and fair elections, and they want a government that is not associated with uh, the criminal gangs that are wreaking havoc across the country. Hi, Darisa. This is Malik. Thanks for joining us. Um, first of all, I actually wanted to express my condolences to Haiti and the entire Caribbean. I think it was McKeeban, if I'm saying his name right, he died in the um, over the weekend um, in Paris. So wanted to express those condolences. But to Jamal's point about how did Haiti get this way, one of the things that, and it's not talked about enough, um, Bill Clinton's trade policies essentially destroyed Haitian rights farming. 
Um, and I think it was in 2010 where he ended up apologizing for, for forcing Haiti to drop tariffs on imported um, subsidized U.S. rice. Can you talk about, like, even from, like, the U.S.'s perspective, the U.S.'s role in destabilizing Haiti? Yeah, uh, that's correct. Um, and, you know, you, you, you're mentioning Bill Clinton. And interestingly enough, we're seeing Haitians currently protesting not just against the, the United States regimes of past, but also of present. They are angry even at, at current President Joe Biden, who asked Haitians to vote in favor of him in order for him to ensure that there is some sort of, a, of stability. But now they are, they are protesting in the capital city, uh, painting themselves in the color of the Russian flags, denouncing um, President Joe Biden and stating that they didn't actually want the United States to intervene in the way that it has done previously. What they actually want is for is for a hands off Haiti approach, but also for some sort of um, intervention in terms of access to, as I mentioned before, food. They want access to food. They want access to fuel. Basic necessities that the West has a monopoly over. I guess the problem is, though, even if it got those supplies or materials, there's no way to really affect it or to get it out to the public in a way that they can basically use it, especially if gangs are basically running roughshod over the location. I mean, so from your standpoint... As you mentioned, though, the gangs do have control, yes, and, and that's undisputed, but it's also because they've blocked access to these to these very necessities that we've mentioned. So I do believe that while it would be... It would be difficult to get the goods and services to remote areas across Haiti, but at the very least, having it is it, it's, it's the initial problem, you know, having access to it. I guess uh, some sort of, of peace agreement could be brokered because I'm pretty sure that, that these individuals also need access to medical care, also need access to food, um, also need access to, to, to fuel because they will run out at some point. And so I guess having access to it is, is, is just the, the, the primary um, challenge for, for the Haitian people. If military was brought into the country, what is the expectation that military is going to do? I mean, is the thought that the military comes in and fights the gangs in order to give power to a government that wasn't elected? Like, what is the thought behind the military intervention into Haiti itself? Meaning, on a, in a practical sense, meaning in real-world terms, what is the intervention force expected to do? Yeah, I, I guess that, that's the big question that we all, we, we all have because um, definitely— um, Prime Minister Ariel Henry is in the in the position that he's in, not because of his own volition only, but because of also the international community backing him. If we remember correctly, uh, he wasn't the first person to assume that position after uh, President Jovenel Moise's demise. And so it, it's, it's very questionable, I think, if we do in fact see military intervention from the United States and Canada, we've already seen the deployment um, of, of armored vehicles. It means that it's going to strengthen an already illegitimate administration in the eyes of the Haitian people. And so we're left wondering, what's the next step? Do we supply this government with the goods and services that the Haitian people desperately need do we leave the Haitian people to figure this out on their own, something that we don't see necessarily happening? We've seen mass protests. We've seen collateral damage as a result. Or do we just try to broker some sort of agreement between the powers that be, the parties involved, the stakeholders involved, 
try and initiate some level of peace and normalcy for Haitians. It's been going on for far, far too long. That's so unfortunate uh, because if, if it was you, if you had to give advice on the direction to go, meaning starting from here and you had some level of God-like ability where you can make a choice in regards to, okay, what happens? From your standpoint, what should happen here? Well, we need to happen. We, we need to see uh, Prime Minister Ariel Henry step down. That is the first step. It's something that the Haitian nationals have been calling for. They want free and fair elections. We need to ensure that they have it. What successive people have tried to do is they have tried to change the constitution to extend the tenure of the president. A president can't sit in office for more than two terms. Um, They may have a, a system where they can take a break, and, and go up for elections again, but they can't sit indefinitely. And so we need to have free and fair elections. The constitution need not change for to facilitate um, that sort of monopoly on power. And we need to get these individuals in charge of the gangs in police custody, remove the head. And what you have is a, a greater opportunity to sort of disperse these organizations and get access the much-needed access to the Haitian people on the ground. Whatever we need to do, though, it needs to take place with minimal collateral damage. As a matter of fact, one civilian death is one too many. And so we need to do things, and and, and I would advise that whatever takes place takes that into consideration. Basically, whatever you do in order to try to get Haiti back on some level of, let's say, growth and repair, that you shouldn't. And, and I think most people would agree with you, right? The last thing that people want is people dying um, from some kind of chaos or some kind of conflict, especially if you're bringing in military troops. And the last time the military troops of the UN were there, there were all sorts of issues associated with it, right? Yeah, we, we the last set of troops that were in Haiti that only left, I would say, like five years ago, um, was responsible for using cholera was responsible, was also responsible, similar to the gangs, um, raping women, leaving a lot of women um, with, with children and, 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 and what, what was happening with those organizations that was sent there also by the United Nations. These persons were repatriated to their nations. They were repatriated to their homelands. So they have not received any form of justice, any form of, of you know, uh, I, I want to say, going through any legal system um, for the crimes and the atrocities that they would have committed. They took advantage of their situation. They, they took advantage of their position and they would have promised Haitian women uh, a better life and, and gullible, naive, or just hopeful. These women became victims. And it's it's a recurring trend because nobody's actually looking after the lives of Haitian citizens, especially the most vulnerable women and children. And so it's it's a very sad situation to see it happening once again. Whatever takes place, we need the international community to let Haitians decide who should go up for office. It shouldn't be that they have a say, and that's what has been happening. They have had a say in who sits in power in Haiti. And this is what the Haitian citizens and Haitian nationals have been, um, you know, protesting against. They want to elect their own leaders in order for them to run their country themselves. And I mean, it's only fair. And Mr. Reese, and with a country that has iridium, which is more valuable than gold and Bitcoin, it just doesn't make sense for them to even be in the position that they're in. Haiti deserves the right to control all of that. 
Yeah, most definitely. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I was asked about uh, uh, what advice I could give. I mean, even the reparations that Haiti had to pay to France. We should see some of that being given back or all of it being given back to Haiti. Doris, we're going to have to close it. Thank you. Thank you for this. Doris Polo is a Trinidad-based journalist specializing in Caribbean region. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. Reese Everson, Malik Abdul, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas, and I'm joined with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul. You guys are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. All right, Reese Polo, thank you for that. I mean, all things being equal. Yeah, the thing with Haiti, oftentimes that stuff is not necessarily in our minds. Either Haiti, Africa, many of these countries we don't entirely pay attention to, even though the foreign policy from the U.S. has had dramatic effects on that country. So. Yeah, and there are many people who have long criticized the Clinton's role. Oh, yes. What was that, the, the Clinton Foundation? Clinton yeah. Foundation, yeah. that's right. Especially yeah. after the earthquake and these guys mm-hmm. took all this money in and was building like stadiums. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and house like these little, um, what is it, um, model houses or something like that like they weren't even yeah yeah. i mean it's like like you guys got all of this money and this is what you did with it what are we going to do with a soccer stadium like you have people who are basically living in the middle of nowhere their homes destroyed and yeah to your point it was disgusting you had billions of dollars going in and you look around at what they built and it's like what is this yeah, nothing. For that much money, you could bought Haiti. And that's why they are so distrustful of outside influence because they've seen the historical I- impact of what... What it does. You know, whether it's a nonprofit, the government, um, they just have a right not to be trusting. And by the way, you heard her talk about when the last troops were there last time. The women... Because Haiti is in such a problematic economic position, you had women who were basically believing, exactly, promise a better life. Some of these women had kids with these guys. Sometimes they were paid, you know, prostitution type stuff. I mean, the cholera outbreak, meaning the troops that were there last time didn't necessarily leave a good taste Mm -hmm. in the people's mouth. And so in their case, they're like, what do you mean you're calling for additional national help? By the same token, you're in this kind of weird box of, well, yeah, you have gangs who are basically rivaling the government in the sense of control. So even if you could bring the supplies in, you get the fuel, the, how are you going to gonna distribute it? Yeah. Well, it's now a zero-sum theory because there's so little. Now, right. because everyone has a crumb, everyone's fighting for the little Everybody's bit of crumb that they it. have. That's right. Those but gangs are going to keep that that's stuff. that's powerful as well, giving Haiti, giving Haiti back the reparations paid to France. Even that conversation needs to be had and taken seriously. And just to be clear, what you're talking about is basically... Haiti was a slave colony of France. France, at the point where Haiti threw off the slavery, forced Haiti to pay them for the slavery itself. Mm -hmm. Now, if you think about this in the United States terms, you had the situation with U.S. slavery. African-Americans, or basically Africans, were considered to be um, property. Property. And so, like anything else, if somebody takes your property, like in a civil war, oh my God, you've stolen my property that just so happened to be human beings. When Haiti's situation... France was like, well, you need to pay us back for the worth that you guys had. Think about that. After fighting for their own freedom. Yeah, think about yeah. that. You need to pay us 
for the slavery that we basically kept you guys in because you guys were had a certain value to us that you've now removed. Like some of those and African nations still paying France think about today. That. And Isn't that wild? For every um, for the sugar that you produce, which is what we had uh, you guys working on as a um, as a slave property, you guys created sh- or made sugar yeah. for us. You have to continue to provide that to us at a lower price. Also, for yeah, the yeah. next indefinite. And it's know, like I don't understand why Haiti is so poor. Yeah, that's why. Let's yeah, they, paid, they paid about five hundred and sixty million. Man, yeah, that country has gotten screwed over so many times. Uh, but let's get into headlines. All right. In our domestic news, new whistleblower allegations suggest that the Federal Bureau of Investigation (FBI) has in its possession significant impactful and voluminous evidence with respect to potential criminal conduct by Hunter Biden and James Biden, according to Senator Chuck Grassley, Republican of Iowa. Furthermore, President Joe Biden was aware of Hunter Biden's business arrangements and may have been involved in some of them, wrote the Republican senator in a Monday letter addressed to Attorney General Merrick Garland, FBI Director Christopher Wray, and U.S. Direct Attorney for Delaware, David Weiss. Grassley said the FBI had documents shedding light on the activities of Mykola Zlochevsky, the owner of Ukrainian natural gas firm Burisma Holdings, that Hunter Biden sat on the board of. According to Biden, according to Grassley, it is unclear whether the FBI followed normal investigative procedures to determine the truth and accuracy of the information or shut down investigative activities based on improper disinformation claims in advance of the 2020 election. Is there any coincidence that Hunter Biden was on a board and then Joe Biden sent 66 million over to? I'm just curious. Anyway, the jurors in the case of Russian national Igor Donchenko, who has been charged with lying to the FBI during the Trump-Russia collusion probe, retired due to deliberate to deliberate on the verdict, a Sputnik correspondent reported from the court. At about 1 p.m. 17 um, uh, Mountain Time, the prosecution and defense in the Donchenko case finished presenting their closing statements, and the 12 jurors retired to their room to consider the evidence and reach a verdict. The correspondent reported on Monday, in the closing argument, the prosecution pointed to the fact that Donchenko worked for an extended period of time with British spy Christopher Steele on his dossier against the then-presidential candidate Donald Trump. Former U.S. President Donald Trump spoke with artist Kanye West, also known as Ye, and made plans to have dinner with the rapper in the future, amid criticism that both figures have made remarks that are considered anti-Semitic. Politico has said in their report, Trump and Ye spoke over the phone on Monday following the latter's decision to purchase social media platform Parler. The report said, citing a person familiar with the call, the decision came after other platforms, including Twitter and Instagram, banned Ye for violating policies on anti-Semitic language. U.S. efforts to provide military assistance to Ukraine could be put in jeopardy if Republicans take control of Congress after the midterm election in November. According to U.S. Senate Armed Service Chairman Jack Reed said during a think tank event, if the Republicans are able to take over, they have a much more sort of extreme group of people, then their demands might be unacceptable in any way, shape or form, said Reed on Monday. 
So we could be in a situation where our domestic turmoil and our domestic arguments are such that the collateral damage, as I said before, is to our support for Ukraine. The United States is confident in Pakistan's ability to secure its nuclear weapons. U.S. State Department spokesperson Vedant Patel said on Monday, the United States is confident of Pakistan's commitment and its ability to secure its nuclear assets. President Joe Biden said last week that Pakistan may be one of the most dangerous countries in the world because it has nuclear weapons without any cohesion. In international news, Liz Truss's new chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, who on Monday ditched further tax cuts introduced by his predator, Kwasi Kartang, in his unpopular mini-budget, called on Tory critics to give the prime minister a chance and ruled out the notion that he had any ambition to succeed her. Also, as Liz Truss embarked on a flurry of talks to salvage her tottering premiership on Monday amid warnings that she was in office but not in power, there was speculation that a tacit pact had been entered into between a Penny Mordaunt ally and Rishi Sunak. The Times reported Sunak was allegedly approached by an ally of the leader of the House of Commons last week during whether uh, to discuss whether he would become chancellor again in a Mordaunt government should trust be forced to resign. Iranian Foreign Minister Spokesman Nasser Khani said Tehran will soon impose retaliatory measures over new EU sanctions. In response to today's steps by the Council of Foreign Ministry of the European Union, retaliatory sanctions against the relevant European individuals and legal entities will soon be announced and imposed, Khani said, as quoted in the Iranian ministry's telegram. He also called the European sanctions a violation of international law, interference in the internal affairs of Iran, and a tool to achieve political goals. As the United Nations positions for yet another military intervention into Haiti, Western media has ignored the massive demonstrations in the island nation against both acting Prime Minister Ariel Henry and the possible arrival of new foreign troops. Thousands have demonstrated in Haitian cities for months calling for Henry's resignation after he arbitrarily rejected the transition of power to a provisional government and decided and decided to stay in power after his mandate expired in February. Those demonstrations have intensified in recent days after Henri appealed to the international community to help him restore order and no likely and, and of course probably stay in power. Some former UK pilots are reportedly being offered up to $270,000 to teach the Chinese military the ways Western pilot and planes operate. Whoa. The US government was made aware of a few former military pilots being recruited to assist Chinese forces as early as 2019, but had dealt with the issue on a case-by-case basis. However, now that the pandemic travel restrictions are being lessened, it appears the occurrences have increased, leading the UK to issue an intelligence alert warning pilots against working for the Chinese military. Google has permanently suspended the account of the Russian Federation Council or Senate, which contains about 20,000 videos and over 200,000 subscribers, the council said on Tuesday. The YouTube accounts of the Federation Council and the VMEST RF together 
our Together Russia TV channel were blocked and all information was deleted without any possibility for recovery, the council said on Telegram. Google's notification read that the account has been blocked in accordance with the rules regarding export restrictions and the application of sanctions, as cited by the council. The Guardian reported that the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs had deleted text from its website that described Western Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, as well as language regarding a two-state solution. Australian Foreign, Prime Minister, Foreign Minister Penny Wong announced Tuesday that the Albanese government would officially reverse a past decision to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, a move that was made during the Morrison administration. Wong told reporters at a morning conference that former Aussie Prime Minister Scott Morrison made a cynical play that put Australia out of step with the international community underscoring that Jerusalem is a final status issue that should be negotiated between Palestine and Israeli officials. On this day in history, in 1867, Alaska Purchase was made. The Alaska Purchase, U.S. takes formal possession of Alaska from Russia, having paid $7.2 million. That's not too much for a whole state. The sta state of Alaska. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. That's not too much. In 1931, American gangster Al Capone was convicted of tax evasion. In 1962, James Watson of the U.S., Francis Crick of the U.K., and Maurice Wilkins of the U.K. win the Nobel Prize for Medicine for their work in determining the structure of DNA, deoxide ribonucleic acid. Ooh, somebody was paying attention in science class. And these are your headlines for Tuesday, October the 18th. And you are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Yeah, these stories, man, some of these stories are fa fantastic. Absolutely. Can, can I read something? I know we just have a minute or so. Go for it. I wanted to read something I'm pretty sure that you guys would be able to appreciate because we talk about it here. Speaking of the military-industrial complex and how everybody is in on it, I want to read from the Washington Post in their Democracy Dies in Darkness column. Democracy Dies in more than 500 retired U.S. military personnel, including scores of generals and admirals, admirals have taken lucrative jobs since 2015 working for foreign governments, particularly Saudi Arabia. <laughs> and one of the persons, one of the persons that they mention is at the top of the story, they mentioned retired Marine General James L. Jones, who was a national security advisor to President Barack Obama. Of course. Bipartisan. This stuff is bipartisan. So it, 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 it look at the juxtaposition of the U.S. president talking about how the U.S. is going to retaliate. Yeah. They're going to get Saudi Arabia back. But we have so many generals and military officials actually doing business in Saudi Arabia. And I bring that up to point out how, especially here um, in the United States, it, it's always, um, you know, criticized. Oh, you're working for a foreign government? Yeah. Oh, my goodness, you're working with Russia? Oh, my goodness. These guys are working with Saudi Arabia. Well, it kind of happens all the time. Yeah. Like, with all foreign governments. With all of these governments. I mean, keep in mind, if you remember the Hillary Clinton things in the— um, she made a point of saying Saudi Arabia was instrumental in spreading terrorism throughout the world. Didn't stop her from taking the money from Saudi Arabia really from, the thing, from the Clinton Foundation. I mean, the money that they were taking from Saudi Arabia while simultaneously saying these guys are instrumental in spreading terrorism and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
protests. Now, you, you right, you're make, racist, but I'll take your money. But I'll though. take your money. <laughs> yeah. The distinction, right. a clear delineation between people who are former generals of the military going to work for Saudi Arabia and a Hunter Biden who's a former nothing yeah. um, with no experience and having worked with and being on a board of directors in Ukraine. Well, for that matter, even the relationship with that's China with Hunter Biden. Look, I mean, That's just nepotism. We just got to call that out and show the distinction. Well, yeah, because okay. they, they put him in that position purely because his last name is Biden. Of course. Let's be very clear. It wasn't like he had any experience in Ukraine. It wasn't like he had experience in oil and gas. His experience was last name Biden. Right. He had that's what no we needed. energy experience. No. And, and, and he knows and, the big guy, which hey, we don't I'm know and exactly the big guy. who that is. And I'm not one of those who criticizes people from benefiting from being nepotism. related. Yeah. Or, <laughs> nepotism. I'm not, hey, You're I have okay no— okay with nepotism? I absolutely have no problem with it as long as it's done legally and yeah. it doesn't act— You know, there are no conflicts. But if, if I'm friends with Jamal and Jamal is the vice president of the United States, you my boy. Yeah, right. I need, <laughs> right. Give me the hookup. Because you know? I may bring you into a position saying, hey, I want this person to be in this position. Let's say if I had a kid. Maybe I want him to be a producer. Yeah, I want my kid to be. Yeah. <laughs> so I, mean, I don't. But when it's done in a way where, you know, it's against rules or regulations. Yes. That's a little and different. And it's dicey for your president, for your dad to be vice president of the United States after they oh, overthrow the government. You go, ah, massively shady. And it's like your kid is in that position. Biden, like, I knew nothing about it. Right. I knew nothing about it. So what do you mean you knew nothing about it? So he was the head of this company while you were head of basically vice for Ukraine. And you two never talked at all. Come on. We know we, who the big guy is. This is what you're mind is Loretta is Lynch. Big guy? It's like Loretta Lynch saying, had a conversation with Bill Clinton. Loretta, right. if you remember, on the tarmac. Yes, on the tarmac. <laughs> Loretta Lynch was going to be responsible for whether or not um, Clinton right. got indicted. Mm-hmm. Bill Clinton shows up on the tarmac and is like, we just talk about our kids. Right. Yeah, because Bill Clinton didn't have to say anything to you. Uh, for one, I don't believe that they were just talking about their kids. That's mm-hmm. that. Even if you were, the idea that Bill Clinton is on that tarmac is directly related to his wife potentially being Indicted. And, and two, and even though I criticize um, Loretta Lynch, you know, for, for that conversation and she deserved the criticism, what I will say is that it, I, I imagine that that was more a Bill Clinton oh, thing. Oh, thousand percent right. And yeah. her, like, in, you it's know, like initiating Bill Clinton the being there in and of itself is a message. Right. <laughs> That's the right. that I mean. Bill Clinton doesn't have to say anything. you don't even have to be there. You, you didn't have to you be there. You have been president in years. What are the chances that Clinton just so happened <laughs> be in that? Up. Hey, I'm just so happy to be here. Uh, oh, Loretta Lynch is here. Oh, okay. I talked to I her on the conversation with her. Yeah. But to your point, like Malik, you're absolutely right. There is a longstanding revolving door, as you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, President Obama supposed, uh, said that he was attempting to shut the revolving door by prohibiting <laughs> executive branch appointees from, one, accepting it from lobbyists. You realize Citigroup then, was based—Citigroup oh, uh, chose the people who were going to be in Obama's um, term and cabinet yeah. and whatnot. Like the, and the majority of those people that they chose showed up in Obama's cabinet. Yeah. So he's stumbled. Oh, I'm going to get rid of this revolving no, door. Yeah. Oh, Senate group, how many people do you need? Everybody, oh, you need these people here? Okay. Everyone, well. everyone talks about that. And to some degree, everyone, every president comes in with these sort of executive orders on you can't do lobbying. Yeah. There's ways around that. Yeah, yeah. Everyone a thousand percent right. It's like, oh, we're, we're going to change things in Washington. No, you're not. No, you're not. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Reese Everson, Malik Abdul. We'll be back in a moment. We're going to talk about the Dan, um, Igor Danchenko case. That is fascinating. I thought this guy was screwed. And now as I look at it more, maybe not. Maybe not. What is John Durham going to do? And if John Durham loses a second case, 
What does it mean for the Trump-Russia investigation? Darn Durham needs this win. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Reese Everson, Malik Abdul. We'll be back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm Maurice Everson, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Reese, Malik, and I are putting down whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a tweet, or, for that matter, chat or by phone at 202-521-1320. We'll be taking your calls at 945. Definitely get involved. You guys help to make the show what it is. But we're going to get into the Igor Dan- the Danchenko case. This case is fascinating. At this point, this has gone to the jury. We're waiting for the jury to come back with the verdict. They ran for four hours yesterday without necessarily coming back with anything. And the question is, did Danchenko lie? And what does it mean to talk to somebody? Meaning, if I send somebody a letter, is that the same thing as me talking to somebody? And that's going to be basically what the jury is going to have to decide. Communicate, yes. Talk, no. That's the question, right? And that's going to be, I guess, a legal choice. But we're joined with Ted Harvey. He's chairman of StopJoe.com. Ted, welcome to the show, my man. How are you doing this morning? I am great. Good morning. Thank you for having me on again. No, thank you for joining us. And so this case is fascinating to me on so many levels. So I'll just read this part. This is out of Politico. It said, Durham Durham charged Dan Shaker with lying to the FBI when he said he never, quote, talked, unquote, to public relations executive Charles Dolan about the compendium of Trump political opponents paid for by British intelligence officer Christopher Steele to compile the Trump's ties to Russia. Many of the stories in the so-called Steele dossier appear to be apocryphal, and the FBI personnel who testified at the trial said that they weren't able to cooperate any of it. (laughs) While there was proof at the trial that Danchenko emailed with Dolan, there was no evidence that the two men ever spoke about the dossier. Durham's team alleged that the jury could find the emails amounted to talking, but Tringa, an appointee of President George Bush, said it appeared Danchenko's denial was literally true, so the count had to be thrown out. What's your take on this? I mean, is talk a letter? Like, how do you think the judge, or how do you think they're going to rule on this one way or the other? And what's your take on it one way or the other? Uh, last time we, I was on the show, I said, I'll believe it when I see it. Right. This, this has been going on for years, and nothing has come of it. What this reminds me of is when my son was, was little, and I told him he couldn't be on his computer at night, um, that he needed to be asleep in bed. I caught him one night on his mom's computer. <laughs> Smart man. Smart You never man. said I couldn't take my mom's computer. Smart I love man. that. I love that. Honestly, honestly, he said, it's a loophole. Right. It's my computer. It's not, it's not my computer. It's my mom's computer. And that's what this sounds like to me, is that um, everybody understood when you were being asked, did you talk to, did you tell the FBI that um, you, you were a part of this entire investigation and that you, you had fed the, the FBI this information? Everybody understood that it meant, did you communicate with the FBI? Right, right. I, I, you asked if I talked. I didn't talk to them. I Is that enough? I mean, I, I, like, 
(laughs) Is the jury going to look at this and say, okay, fair enough. They didn't talk to anybody. I mean, because, you know, this is a legal issue. And with legalities, sometimes there come very specific things. Meaning, if I say talk, is that legally meaning to talk? I understand that everybody understands that that's communication. But at the point where they say, well, look, he didn't lie because he never really talked to this person. You provided no evidence that he ever talked to this person. And even his lawyer made the point of saying, well, look, they might have communicated through applications, meaning the information that he got from these so-called sources that apparently didn't necessarily exist. Well, he said, well, how do you know they don't exist? Maybe he contacted them through WhatsApp. Maybe he talked to them through Signal. Maybe he talked to them through something else. Meaning you don't have any kind of detailed information to indicate that he verbally talked to somebody, which is what talk typically means. And his point is, I didn't talk to any of these people. Only thing I did was message. Is, I mean, basically, did he find a loophole in the situation, in a legal sense. Were you on mom's computer and not on... Yeah, exactly. Like, I was fascinated by this because I thought he was caught dead to rights. And then as I read through it, it's like, okay, well, maybe not. The judge tossed out one of the charges against them right off the bat. And by the way, what does this mean for Durham in this case? I mean, Durham put in Sussman. I believe there was another guy who he basically did catch. Um, right here, Klein, Kevin Kleinsmith was basically a, um, net, a guilty plea from a lawyer forging details in an email related to the surveillance application during the early stages of the Trump-Russia probe. Okay, so he got one. Sussman was off immediately. I Meaning Sussman <laughs> couldn't put his hands on Sussman. So if Durham loses this chase with Danchenko, what does it mean for the Durham investigation in and of itself? Does this basically bring it into it? You know, I read all of the stories about Durham when, this fir- when he was first appointed. And mm-hmm. he said he is a stickler for details. He is not going to bring a case forward unless he's got the goods. He he is one of the most successful prosecutors in, in Washington, D.C. And, um, you know, I've got to fall back on his reputation and say that that's what he's going to be going on. But you, you look at the success so far and the length that this has taken, and he's only getting these very, very low-level people. Right. Assume he's trying to get the low-level people to then get them to flip and go for the, the bigger fish. But um, at this point, does anybody trust the judicial system in, in our country when um, the FBI, the chief law enforcement agency in the country, can do all of this kind of shenanigans and then a a guy gets off because of a, a loophole? Technicality, yeah. And the, I mean, this, this is just ridiculous what's going on, but it shouldn't surprise anybody because this happened to Hillary Clinton. This this is happening to the FBI. This is happening to everybody that's come up against um, that's that's tried to bring down Donald Trump. They can do and say anything they want, but in the end, there's no there's no justice for the American people. There. Well, there's this other weird situation where the prosecutor basically calls an FBI witness, and the FBI witness is basically saying, "Yeah, Danchenko, we needed that guy. That guy was great." In which case, the Durham prosecution starts attacking. The own witness that they put on a witness stand. Think about that. We're bringing this guy on, and the guy comes in and basically backs up Danchenko saying, yeah, this guy was helpful, despite the fact that everything he was putting out was nonsense. And Durham's team, legal team is stuck in a situation of going after the FBI agent that they put on the stand themselves. This is stuff. This is super weird stuff. I mean, they're basically making the point of saying the FBI was basically incompetent and was using this information. And then you get to Durham and you ask this larger question of, okay, to your point, these are pity any people that you're basically trying to get on technicalities of lying. Is it possible that this is all that Durham has? 
Well, I think the FBI did a very good job of covering their steps. I mean, he he got the the I, I don't remember which one of the FBI what his what his name was, but for lying on on the FISA application, right? Um, he, he got him for lying. Um, everybody else is okay. Don't have to worry about the fact that they were lying to everybody. Um, up and down the chain, they were lying to everybody, all the way up to James Comey, mm-hmm. who leaked information to his friend to get it to the Washington Post so that it would put together a, a justification for the Mueller investigation. Right. All of these things are illegal, but they, they know how to play the game so that they can skirt the law. And um, they're getting away with it. By the way, to your point, and I'm going to let Malik come in. But if I'm not mistaken, Comey goes in and has a conversation with Trump about the PP tape and the dossier. Say, hey, Mr. President, there's information out here that says that, you know, you had a prostitute pee on a bed because you hated Obama so much. However, we need to keep this to ourselves. Comey walks out that room and immediately leaks it. Now, the reason that he leaks it is because the press at this point says, well, if the FBI... Or if Cuomo is having a conversation with Trump about a dossier, despite the fact that we can't find anything to corroborate the dossier, the very fact that the conversation is taking place in and of itself means that there is some level of value or truth to the dossier. So immediately he gets the press to get involved in something where there was no there there to it after talking to the president saying we got to keep this to ourselves. Isn't that some? Isn't that amazing? Like this is like a situation where they are actively out it's to get you. Coordinated. Yes, yes. It's just fascinating. Bleak. It was coordinated. Everybody, everybody um, admitted that it was coordinated. Chloe admitted during the congressional investigation that the the reason why he leaked the information to his friend to get to the Washington Post, he said specifically was so that they would empower a special counsel to look into Trump. Um, they, they, we would not have had a special counsel had it not been for Comey leaking the, his, his private notes with the president of the United States, which by definition is classified information. Yeah, so, Ted, it's, it's Malik. Thanks for joining us. Uh, it, it, we can go back a little uh, further, further before Danchenko. Um, Fiona Hill. Fiona Hill. The former White House advisor, I think national security advisor to Trump, but also one of the star witnesses in the impeachment trial um, against Donald Trump. She was like one of the Ukraine in in the Ukraine on the Ukraine side or something like that. Um, She introduced Danchenko to this guy, a Clinton operative, Charles Dolan. What did Charles Dolan do? Charles Dolan was the person who made up the story, um, made up some of the things that he was funneling to Danchenko. Specifically, he said that the things that he supposedly had gotten, the information he had supposedly gotten from a Republican operative, he got it from cable TV. (laughs) Like, he literally made this up. You know, this is no confusion about it. And in fact, when asked, he testified last week um, that he hadn't talked to any Republican and that he got it from TV. He said he got it off the cable news and explicitly said, I was trying to throw him a bone because he was helping me. 
So we're talking about coordinated efforts. So they knew all of this at the time that in January, when they debriefed or whatever, Danchenko in January, they knew at the time that all of these things were true. And what happened after that? Although Danchenko was not able to prove. Now, let's be clear. If you offer me a million dollars, I am going to do (laughs) whatever I can to prove whatever the theory is. Well, just to be clear, they offered him a million dollars to prove what he was saying was true. Right, to prove what he was saying was true. Well, he couldn't prove what he was saying was true. And what did the FBI do after that? The FBI said, you know what? We're still going to hire you. (laughs) And he ended up getting hundreds of thousands of dollars. After the fact, even though they knew that the stuff that he was peddling was not true. So we're talking about coordinated. I mean, this is like on another level. And the FBI, although the FBI, you know, the the claim, you know, that Danchenko lied to the FBI. Okay, woe is us, the FBI. But the FBI participated in this. And there are many people who believe that they tried to keep the um, identity of several of them, and I believe um, Dolan was one of them, they tried to keep his identity a secret so he wouldn't be named in any official documentation. Yes, you're talking about a conspiracy. This is a C-O-N-spiracy that operated at the all levels of, feder- of the federal government. It is a sham. Of the, of the chief law enforcement agency, the most powerful law enforcement agency in the world, to try to bring down the president of the United States. You, you kept using the word coordinated. What was being coordinated? What was being coordinated was a coup to bring down the president of the United States. And that's what this investigation is all about. And yet, it doesn't look like we're going to have anybody held accountable for it. And that is what should scare everybody. When you now see the FBI going after individual citizens simply because they go to a school board meeting and they voice their concerns to their elected officials, now the FBI is being weaponized to go after you and me. Yeah, and Ted, to that point, for 22 months, Mueller investigated this for 22 months, and none of this came out during the... How could it not come out in any, even in the official report? I don't think it it ended up in the report at all. All of the things that we know that are not true. How, over the course of a 22-month period, does the FBI not come out with this information if it were not trying to cover up its own tracks? And why could it not come out when it was the Republicans that were in the majority during those two years of the Mueller investigation? Why didn't the Republicans subpoena some of these people and bring them for before the Mueller uh, trials in the, in the House? Specifically, um, was it were the Republican leadership in the House working to make sure that the, the, these people weren't held uh, for account? Um, I think um, Donald Trump should hold. Should, <laughs> I think Donald Trump and the American people should hold the leadership in both the House and the Senate during these, this two-year period accountable because none of this stuff came out and it should have. Yeah, and that's a very good point. And I believe, well, this is just me, you know, I believe that the Republicans were being a little weak. They were conceding to, you know, the media narrative and didn't want to be perceived as interfering in the investigation because, you know, keep in mind, at this point, there are things that the FBI is saying that they have 
well, no, we know that they later didn't have, but the FBI was saying that. So I think part of this, you know, not to defend Republicans, but I think part of this was them trying to show that they're being serious about the investigation and all of that. And it ended up backfiring, but the evidence speaks for itself. And I think the more that we have these type of instances, and I'm hoping that people um, look at this Danchenko, whatever happens after this, and now we know, you know, with Trump being raided, that people need to look at our governments. You know, Trump talked about a deep state. And people kind of mocked it. You know, there's no such thing. It's all in his mind. I do believe that there is a deep state that exists within governments, and it is there to go after whether it's a Republican or Democratic president. I think that there are um, entities within the federal government who see themselves as standing up for democracy or whatever. But at the end of the day, they're not the executive. And I think that is where the failure is, particularly in the Trump administration, where you had so many people leaking things. You had so many people doing things to particularly undermine his executive authority. I think that's something that's going to have to change, because if it doesn't, if it, yeah, sure, it happened to Trump, but it will happen to another president and not necessarily a Republican one. Yeah, they're, they're not the elected representatives of the people, and they think they are smarter than the people, and they are going to do whatever it takes to, to bring down their opposition. But I'm not going to let the Republicans off as quickly as you are. They did hold hearings. They brought in Peter Strzok. They brought in Lisa Page. They brought in James Comey. Um, it wasn't as though they weren't acting as though they were investigating this, yet they never got to the bottom of any of it. And all of this information that Durham has, you know, it's bringing, been brought out over the last several years, all of this information was knowable when the Republicans held control of the majority and could subpoena all of these people. And they didn't subpoena any of them. None of it came out. And the, 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 uh, the uh, Mueller investigation went on for over two years into the 2018 election to where it had a cloud over the Republican Party and we lost the majority because of it. You know, that's the wild part. And I think just to co-sign what Malik is saying, that's the scariest part of this. I mean, all things been equal, you had a president who was elected, duly elected by the American public. And regardless of what the public thought of him, whether they thought he was competent or not, secondary to the point, he was elected um, legitimately by the U.S. public. You get many Democrats who don't take the election seriously, being saying, okay, well, Donald Trump didn't win on his own steam. They won by the help of Russia. And many of them are still zombies on that particular point today, despite the fact that they don't necessarily have anything to show for it. And it seemed that there was an effort to take down a sitting president in a soft coup. And whether that was the conversations that were being had behind the scenes from the standpoint of the FBI, whether it was the leaking of the information, whether it was the Mueller investigation in and of itself, whether it was these continuous attempts to try to take Donald Trump out in an impeachment hearing. And by the way, that first impeachment would have taken place regardless. If they would have found anything, didn't matter what it was, they would have screamed to the hilt that Donald Trump had something to do with Russia getting him involved and they would have tried to take him out of that office in a soft coup. And then the fact that this happened the first time around and there seems to be no consequences for it. Because honestly, Durham's investigation is only taking these kind of pity any people that were at the very, you know, back end of whatever was taking place. He's not going after <clears throat> what seems to be institutional, meaning whether it's the same point from the standpoint of the FBI. Um, he doesn't seem to be going after these people at all over this, which is horrible because you can have, I say, like a Bernie Sanders that gets in 
and you have people freaking out that don't want Sanders in. You may have a collusion between the party versus the media in order to try to attack Sanders to take him out. And you may even have something like the FBI coming in, coming up with something in order to try to depose him from office. I guess I'm saying Democrats are doing this now. It doesn't have to be a Republican that this happens to later. It could be somebody else who other people actually do like. I think that's the worst part of this. Is it a situation, do you think that Durham investigation has plans on going beyond these penny-any people? And if he's not able to get Danchenko, meaning he loses two out of the small three cases that he puts forward, is this basically the end of Durham's investigation? Well, I definitely think that's his goal, is to go after these smaller people and then to continue up the, the ladder. Chain, yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know. I think, I think the Danchenko uh, hearings, that I think he will get convicted of something. Is it going to be enough for him to say, okay, well, I'll flip and give you more information? It depends on what it is. Yeah, whether or not they basically have something on him that will incentivize him to flip on somebody else who might have been a larger fish. It just seems like he's going after small potatoes when the organization or the people who are going after Trump seem to be coordinated between media, um, the political branch, and for the most part, the judicial or the FBI. It just seems like there was an organization that was out trying to get Trump, whether it was coordinated or not. It definitely came across as if it was a coordinated attempt to take out a sitting president. Um, I want to move over to something for a moment. There's a poll that just came out. This is a Harvard Caps Harris poll. And what this poll is going through makes all the sense in the world. And yet it's not entirely reflected yet in our politics, per se. So right here, they ask who's the most popular people, political leaders. You have Trump. You have Mike Pence. Um, and you have Biden. Biden is underwater by eight points on this, whereas Pence is up by a huge Mike majority. Pence? Mike Pence, yeah. Um, Bernie Sanders is number four. Breaks even, meaning he's the most popular Democrat that's out or the most popular politician. And what number those. is Biden? Biden is number three, but Biden is underwater by eight points, meaning the people who dislike Mike him. Mike Pence is ahead. Above, yeah. Oh. Mike Pence is ahead. Yeah, seriously. When you ask what is the major issues affecting the country, Prices, meaning inflation, economy, and immigration, and crime is the fourth. When you ask what party are representing those interests. So when you go to Democrats, Democrats, top issue from the standpoint of the public, January 6th, women's rights, environmental groups, and guns. When you ask them what are Republicans, immigration, inflation, and the economy. Meaning the things that the public says they care about the most, inflation, economy, and jobs, are the exact things that the public appropriate. With the Republican Party, meaning from their standpoint, the Republican Party is talking about these items. From the standpoint of Democrats, January 6th is the top issue. Women's rights is number two. Climate is number three. They are massively out of touch. Massively. And, and, and to your point, just before you answer it, to your point, um, because I, I saw this on um, the news yesterday. Yeah. Um, the issues GOP handle better than Democrats. So on crime, Democrats are up 15 points. Inflation, Democrats are up. 13 points. Really? Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, Republicans. Republicans. I okay, I'm, sorry, that's why I'm like, sorry, what? Sorry. <laughs> but that's what no, I mean, Republicans though. Republicans are up. From the standpoint of the public, when they think of Democrats, they're thinking January 6th, women's rights, environmental change. When they think of Republicans, they're thinking of immigration, economy, and um, immigration, economy, and inflation. Yeah. What? So, I mean, The disconnect. This, there's a massive disconnect here. Yeah. And is this means a windfall for Republicans, meaning Democrats at one point started to say, okay, we're catching up to Republicans, and maybe this is not going to be a watershed moment. Maybe Republicans early, aren't going to take the House and the Senate. Exactly. Then immediately post-Roe. Um, yeah, Roe v. Wade becomes one of the top issues. And right here, 
Roe v. Wade for Democrats. What, number two? Well, that's not on the public's mind at all. And I kept asking this question about whether Roe v. Wade will be enough to get Democrats in office. And I wasn't sure there was enough powder in that gun in order to make that work. And according to these polls, no, it's not. What's your take on this, Ted? Well, one, it's going to be a blowout because of these polls. Yeah. The reason why abortion is not as high as the Democrats thought it would be, because in places like Colorado, where I live, you can get abortion on demand up until the very last minute in yeah. New York City, where, where you know huge number of Democrat voters are. You can do the same there. Basically, abortion wasn't repealed in the 50 states. It was repealed in some states, meaning they got rid of it in some states based on the laws the Republicans put into place. But the overall country, well, you don't have a coordinated, meaning you don't have a country that is basically organized around this notion of abortion because many of those places can still get abortions. That's your point. And where are these huge numbers of Democrats? They're in these blue states where you can still get abortion. Right. Good point. Abortion issue that the Democrats hoped would be a major issue. It's not because where the Democrats live, they can still get abortions. So um, it's not a big issue there. But the economy is a huge issue to everybody. Doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or Republican or unaffiliated, whether you're in blue states or red states, massively high um, gas prices, inflation, stock market crashing through the floor, um, home prices crashing, that's hitting every single person, every family. And that is what's going to have the biggest impact on this election. And I think the Republicans are probably going to pick up 30 to 60 seats in the House. And I think we're going to pick up two to three seats in the Senate. And uh, Joe Biden's going to be left um, with a Republican majority. So what is that Republican majority going to do once he gets in office? Meaning these are real issues, right? The inflation thing is major. And I suspect that the public attaches it directly to what Biden is doing abroad. Meaning there's no way for Biden to get out of being stuck associated with this because he's politically oriented himself so closely to the issue of Ukraine and the weapons and the money and everything else. We're $31 trillion in debt. And we're sending like $50 billion to Ukraine. My, Russia's military budget is not almost not that much. Meaning they're almost breaking even with Russia's military budget. When Republicans get in office, what are they going to do on the issue of inflation or for that matter, the economy or for that matter, immigration? Well, I hope they put bills on the president's desk that open up our um, oil and gas reserves on federal lands, which the president stopped on day one with an executive order. He said he wasn't going to permit any future development on federal lands. He wasn't going to do that in uh, off the coast, whether it be in, in the Gulf of Mexico or off the coast of California. I hope they put bills on his desk to force him to veto them and show the American people just how radical the, the left is when it comes to oil and gas development. But what about immigration, or for that matter, the economy? I mean, those are real issues. You're talking about like 10%. I mean, hell, you're even talking about, what, 175,000 jobs at this point, where they're forecasting is going to be lost based on the behavior of the Fed and trying to deal with the issues of inflation. What is the Republican Party going to do on those issues if they take power? Uh, With regards to the border, I hope they put on the president's desk a bill that does what the the Trump administration did when they said you cannot seek asylum until you actually fill out the paperwork and and to seek asylum south of the border, which brought illegal immigration to a standstill um, at the very end of the Trump administration. And on day one, Biden overturned that executive order and said the Orders are open. Come on in. I hope the Republicans put that on his desk and force him to veto it. 
show the American people just how radical the Democrats are uh, as an open border party. And so, Ted, to your point, now, you know how it works, especially in, um, you know, if if we don't have a divided con- uh, Congress, which I'm still kind of doubtful, um, I think definitely, we'll, without a doubt, Republicans will get the House back. It's a little iffy when the Senate, you know, when we're talking about the Senate, but one of the races that we're not talking about, people talk about Pennsylvania, they're talking about Ohio and Wisconsin, but they're not talking about Nevada. Nevada, Adam Laxalt, Adam Laxalt is actually leading incumbent um, Cortez Masto. So it's actually leaning now. It's a toss-up. And so Republicans may actually win that seat. And I think that that will ultimately... Um, be a very good thing for the party. But again, whether or not we win the, you know, whether or not we win the Senate, ultimately, I don't know. But I do do think, to Jamal's point about what is it that Republicans are going to do, there are obviously limitations when you're not the party in, party in power in the sense of, ha- you know, having the White House. I think that there is going to be a lot of, definitely there will be a lot of investigations <laughs> that that Republicans will launch. But I do think that if we both win, both the House and the Senate, Republicans will, even from a performative sake, will, um, you know, put certain bills on Biden's desk. What they need to be concerned about is what we're doing in preparation for 2024. So I think that the Republicans need to be responsible. Yes, do the performative stuff, launch a few investigations, see what's going on with Hunter Biden. But at the end of the day, in order for Republicans to have something to say in 2024, they're going to have to have some meat on the bones, meaning not just in 2022, but in 2024, they have to offer something. And we'll say they, and I'll use Donald Trump since it seems like he's going to, you know, he he will be the person running and maybe ultimately the nominee. Donald Trump is going to have to do something then. Joe Biden is evil. Joe Biden is evil. He's going to have to do something else substantive um, in order to convince the American people that Republicans need to be back in power. I, I couldn't agree more. And you didn't hear me talk about investigations. I could care less. With the <laughs> I, I want the Republicans to actually put bills on the president's desk. It's going to force him to show the American people just how radical the left is and, and how much they control the 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 administration, because the the administration, the reason why our country is where it is right now is not because of the Republicans. It's because of the radical positions this administration has taken, whether it's on oil and gas development, whether it's on the border or whether it's on foreign policy. Um, our country is um, gone backwards substantially since Trump was president. And we need to point that out to the American people every single day when the Republicans take back the majority. Well, look, I would I would say this. All things being equal, I am perfectly okay if Republicans put out some kind of platform that they believe in. Because look, at one point, people used to put out platforms. Parties who said, this is what we are. And they would say, this is the things that we want to push for. These are the things that we believe in, et cetera. And the American public can look at it and say, okay, we agree with this or we disagree with it. Somewhere along the way, that went out of the water. They don't do that anymore. And so they may grandstand on a particular issue, but my thing is always brass tacks. What are you going to do about it? So it's one thing for Republicans to talk about inflation or immigration or economy. or t- It's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to say, okay, you're in power now. What do you do? What's the blueprint? What's the blueprint? And so if you have a House and a Senate, I agree with you. Republicans should come out and say, this is what we believe in. This is what we want to do. Here are the bills that we want to pass so the public can get a real world, let's say, impression of one versus the next. What I don't have 
is this understanding of what Republicans would do on the issue of inflation or, for that matter, what they would do for the issue of the economy and jobs. That's what I'm that's my thing. Right. It's like, OK, if Republicans take the House and the Senate, what bills are they going to put out for Joe Biden to show this is how we are on inflation and the economy and this is why we are better? I am unclear on what that is. And they, I imagine that they probably don't know themselves. But that's, that's the horrible thing. Like when, when Newt Gingrich put out, um, what is it, the Blueprint for America. Okay, whether you agree with it or disagree with it, at the very least you can look at it and say, okay, this is what they want to do. I have no idea what Republicans want to do short of being not being Democrat. Well, you know, and to piggyback off of um, what Ted said, so on the issue of immigration, I do think that the Republicans need to do more than um, the stay in Mexico. Yeah. State. I actually think that the Republicans can benefit, you know, will benefit and Donald Trump ultimately, um, whoever the nominee is, I think that Republicans really can benefit for having something. It doesn't have to be an extensive immigration plan, but I do think that they should lay out a framework. Yeah. And it can't just be Biden sucks. Yeah, it can't, it can't just, just, be, just be Biden sucks. It actually has to have some meat on the bones when it comes to something that can work. Because at the end of the day, Republicans have to do more than just say we are against we are against. And even considering if we're talking about like any legislation that they may put out, they have to do more than just the theater. They have to do something that can also get the support of Democrats, because whether Republicans win back the House, the Senate or not, they're not going to get 60 votes. So you need to do something that can get you to 60 votes. I, I, I agree. You have to have the 60 votes. But I think that they it, it, with regards to the economy, oil and gas production is what leads the economy. If you don't have lower gas prices, you're not going to have lower trucking prices. You're not going to have lower agriculture prices. You're not going to have any of the impact on the economy that you have to have if you're not bringing down the the oil and gas prices. And that should be the Republicans' number one goal when it comes to the economy. And you can put that on the Democrats if, and, and get the 60 votes you need, um, because there's a lot of Democrats that represent um, ag communities and trucking communities that have to have the their oil, oil and gas um, costs brought down. And I want to put it on the, dem- on the president's desk and say, this is what we're going to do. You respond to it. And, you know, I, I think that the American people are sick and tired of seeing on the news all of these millions of people coming across the border and nothing is happening. I think the Republicans can shame the Democrats on that issue as well and get the 60 votes necessary in the, in the Senate on, on immigration. Well, I'll tell you this. All things being equal, when Donald Trump was in office, they didn't like the kids in cages, but they definitely agree with him more on immigration than they did with Democrats. And that's even showing in the polling itself, basically saying, hey, this is a major issue. We need to do something about it. And the American public seems to be more online with it um, than the Democrats. And you know what, Jamal, one of the things that I would say, I, I also think, and I do, I, you know, he makes very good points. I think that Republicans also need to be careful when it comes to maybe overpromising on some things, um, particularly when we're talking about something like the inflation or um, maybe gas prices. Mm-hmm. Um, the Biden administration, you know, it, it, gas prices is a geopolitical matter. And I don't think that Republicans would, you know, serve, you know, 
serve themselves well by saying, well, if we get in power, you're going to have those lower gas prices and all of those type of things, because it's not really how it works when it comes to to gas prices. So I think they need to be mindful that if you go in saying, you know, if I'm if Republicans take over, then gas prices are going to go down. Mm, No, it's not exactly how it works. But I do think that they can add some substantive things, not just around those, you know, the culture wars or immigration or anything like that. They can start talking about things to benefit small businesses, things to benefit families. They need to really go hard on things like school choice because that is something that benefited Ron DeSantis in his 2018 race against um, Andrew Gillum. So we need to actually go in hard on those type of, yes, the big ticket things, but some of those smaller things that the American people are talking about. I think we will do ourselves a lot of justice if we have a lot of meat on the bone. And you look what we did in Virginia as well in that yes. election. It was, a, it was the mom and pop issues saying mom and dad do have a say in the public ed- in the public education of their kids. The Virginia elections had to do with Ethiopia more than anything else. I mean, come on. There were, what, a hundred and something thousand Ethiopians, Eritreans that decided that they weren't going to vote for Biden because of the way that Biden was handling the Ethiopian issue. If it wasn't for that. It, what's his name? One to one. I can't think of his name right now, but it'll come to me in a moment. I don't know. I'm thinking Terry Mac, I'm th- um, Terry McCullough talking about uh, parents shouldn't, uh, basically parents shouldn't have a role in the child's education. Yeah, that's problematic. Don't yeah. misunderstand me. That is problematic. But when you look at it, I mean, think what? It was like a 70,000 vote spread or something to that effect. And you get 100,000 Ethiopians at Eritreans who basically changed their vote from Democrat to Republican because from their standpoint, and they're right. The way that the Biden administration was handling Ethiopia, they were making it look as if it was Ethiopia's fault, despite the fact that the government was attacked by the TPLF. And so they punished Biden on this by not voting for um, the Democrat. McCullough was McCull- awful. He was awful. <laughs> I give you look, and he was a, a clean creature. So yeah. fair enough on that point. But I guess I'm making the point that despite how awful he was, he still would have most likely won. Or the Democrat would have most likely won. I don't, I don't think know. McCullough what, what, what do you think about the Ted? <laughs> yeah, we got 30 seconds. No. McCullough, you're, you're right that it was McCullough saying that parents don't have a right to say anything about that didn't help. Yes. that lost the election. And yes, the Republicans need to talk about those kind of important things about, that are going to mobilize pissed off moms across the country. Mm. But when it, comes, when it comes to oil and gas development, we have more oil and gas reserves here in the United States than any, but any place else. And when we actually start to develop it, like we did under the Trump years, brought down world prices and brought down American prices. We need to be the leaders on that, just like we were during the Trump administration. Ted, we're going to have to leave it there. Greatly appreciate you joining us. Ted Harvey, chairman of StopJoe.com. Um, you can hear him. Don't necessarily know if I agree with all that, but it doesn't matter, right? Um, I want to thank our engineers. I want to thank our producers. I want to thank Reese. I want to thank Malik. Fault lines. Back tomorrow. Have a good one, guys. Fault lines.